Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Everybody just wants to be contented. Everyone wants to be happy. Right now is the most important moment. It's just so unfair on every child who doesn't have options. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Uh, just hoping against hope that uh, the dogs don't interrupt me this morning. Someone just knocked on the door. Here at uh, Coogan Towers, and I think someone's gone to open the door, but the dogs tend to lose it when. So, if you hear a bit of interruption in the back, that's that's Harry and Bella. But not a whole pile I can do about it, except just drive on. Good morning, Thursday, the thirtieth day of June, end of June, and look at that weather. A big improvement, though, expected after the weekend. It's looking better and better with each passing day that we'll actually get summer arriving in the early days of July. I was watching that thing develop up on College Road yesterday afternoon. We got a, a statement out from the military about it and they said that their team arrived at the scene around one o'clock. A cordon was established and maintained for the duration. Tests were carried out on samples of a chemical which had been identified. A sample was found as needing further exploration and removed from the scene for further testing. If members of the public encounter suspicious items or hazardous substances, they're advised to maintain a safe distance and inform and grab the Shikana. It doesn't tell us a whole part about what they actually found, but certainly it was quite a significant incident up there, College Road, uh, yesterday afternoon. Now, I'll be talking shortly with a really amazing young woman, uh, bright, articulate, funny, just a wonderful young woman. She's only 15 years of age. She's just done her junior search. She's been blind since she was nine. Um, but I want to talk about the doing the junior cert when you're blind uh, and and the help that she needs and the help she'll need going forward for her leaving cert in uh, years to come. Let's go first though to Donna Sullivan from Impact Our Community Matters. Uh, Don, we've talked to you and I about the ongoing campaign for speed ramps. There's no sign of a speed ramp but you've got a big long list of compulsory purchases under a sustainable Cork plan. Good morning. Good morning PJ. Uh, thanks again for giving us the time there to air our opinions. But yeah, uh, nothing really is developing there from the the speed ramps on Harborview Road. And mm. I think what, what, What's this sustainable Cork plan? 
Yeah, so what you want to do is that uh, we got letters from the NTA in the door yesterday morning with a map outlining, and again, there's a, uh, their, their, their text is saying that uh, the NTA, you know, they want to deliver the Bus Connects uh, programme around the city and around the, na- around the countryside. So mm-hmm. what they're intending on doing is that uh, they want to compulsory purchase order uh, front gardens on Herbview Road to increase the width of the road. No, where we are at the moment is that they're showing four four lanes of traffic. So they they basically want to turn into a super highway. So you'll have two bus lanes and two vehicular lanes on Harvey Road, alongside two uh, bicycle lanes and pedestrian footpaths. Now, when we're looking at this, PJ, is that at the moment the road is only sixteen feet wide. Yeah. So looking at the the, the the figures like three meters for the bus on either side and three meters for the car and then two meters for the bus or for the cycle lane and the footpath. So they want to increase so that's the down, that's twenty feet. That's about thirty feet. That's about thirty feet wide. Thirty feet more. Yeah, so Oh yes, yeah. So we're looking at the road now being increased in width to seventy feet. It'll from be an existing sixteen feet. Down. It, it, it'll be bigger, right? It'll be bigger than that, PJ. No, you know, where we're looking at it is that where we had issues before on Bearer Drive with them trying to get out and go up to Super Value just ahead west going up Harvey Road, they're going to have to negotiate four lanes of traffic plus your cycle lanes yeah. and your footpaths. You know, and we don't see it being viable, really, to be honest, because of what they want to do basically is turn it into a super highway and again mm. you have the residents and you have children playing on that road you know now, and the bus connect stuff is all very welcome bus lanes all very welcome cycle exactly. lanes they're part of where we are but you still want there's no mention in any of this of, of speed controls no there's not and where we where it was left off the last time with the, the 10 speed ramps we're, we're with, with this coming in the door yesterday morning no, we're starting to, our noses are twitching now and sort of saying, they're not going to give us anything at all. You know, now I know that the LSE met uh, last week. We're waiting on a report from that, which is very slow to be coming out, uh, to be honest. And, you know, we're hoping to speak to one of the engineers from City Council where they wanted to give away the 50k to a survey report. Oh, so that one, yeah. We're being, we're being very suspicious here now to say that they're not going to give us anything at all. You know, they'll keep the speed responder signs with the flashing green 50 kph or the red foot 52 and that's your lot. And on your bike because they're giving us bike lanes. So, you know, what, you know, we, we, we don't understand of where they want to put in a super highway. Where is it going to finish? Where is it going to end? Okay, well, it's going to service Apple and we welcome the increase in employment in Apple. We, We welcome that. But they were talking before about the North uh, Distributor Road out around Blarney and places like that. Is that a plan to connect that? We can't see those plans. You know, yeah. when you look at the phases of regeneration with 3B and 4A phases. You well, know, what I'm getting from again, you here, Don, is very much a sense of, and look, you're a fair man. You've been on me many times. I know you're not unreasonable. Yep. Neither are any of your colleagues in, in the group. We, you, everybody welcomes more buses. Everybody welcomes development yes. like that. But you've been asking for these speed ramps since God knows when, since poor Kimberly died. Yeah, and yeah. still no uh, sign of them it, in this multi-million euro plan. Yeah, and, you know, they seem to be talking and talking and talking. In fairness to some of the councillors, you know, and again, you know, 
we could see a case of where the councillors are going into these meetings because we're not privy to them. We're only getting bits coming out of them. They're going in and telling us one thing. Like again, PJ, with, with the protest that we had, everybody had their, their day in the sun where we, it was good for optics and they could be going in and saying one thing and come out and telling us something else. You know, because there's no yeah. progress. The 50Ks after, you know, that's been sat on at the moment for a report. You know, we were hoping to get another 50k into that pot to give us the speed restrictions. And again, what I can see is that they're coming out now and giving us one or two tabletops on Harvey yeah. Road, which is a good considerable distance from the bottom of Baker's Road all the way up to Tyke Barry Road up in Apple. You know, like two, it, it's it's an open T- road. Tabletops being what done for the benefit of someone who doesn't know the term, tabletops. I suppose for you for you and your location, PJ, when you go into Douglas, you'll have Tesco, or you'll have the the shopping centre, the, the smaller one, Douglas Village Shopping yeah. Centre on yeah. your right-hand side. You'll have the Circle K on your left-hand side, and you're heading up towards KC's at that pedestrian crossing. That's a tabletop there. So you rise you. up, you. you go onto a plateau, and you drop back I down have again. You. I have you. So they're no, they'll be, you know, they'll be no good. Now, you're trying to organise another uh, protest for, or a meeting at least, for Tuesday, and you haven't got a venue yet, have you? We're waiting on availability there because where we made a post uh, yesterday morning on, the, on our Facebook page is that people people are outraged at the moment. So what we're going to do is that we're going to coordinate with the, the residents. We're going to get their views. We know their views already, to be honest, PJ, because we've been talking to them on the street and things like that. And, sure. you know, we're hoping now for Tuesday to get a venue. Uh, we're waiting on the availability to have a town hall meeting and get everybody okay. in there. And look, as I said... We had the protest before. The kit gloves now are coming off, PJ. You know, we're sick of it. We're absolutely sick of it. And, you know, I think that people now are going to intensify the protest. We spoke about it. Very clearly, though, Don, the message is, and I hear it again in your voice, we have no problem with progress. We just want our our concerns addressed in association with that. Am I correct? Just to just to wrap, am I correct with that? You are, you are correct, PJ. Yes, we have no problem with progress. We welcome infrastructure. We welcome the developments of regeneration. We welcome the employment in in Holly Hill and Apple and Holly Hill. But okay. what we don't welcome is this this thing of you know fiddling around with us. And you know, not making your situation better for where we right, are. But yes, I, I'm, we welcome progress. I, I've no doubt we'll talk again. Thanks for that. Councillor McNugent was on. That's Don from Our Community Matters. Uh, Councillor McNugent was on saying he will raise the concerns of residents um, at a bus connect briefing today and stress the need for consultation and local meetings and says there should be plenty of opportunities for this before the application goes through to onboard Plenol. That application won't go through until 2024. Nothing happens quickly, which in this case might be might be a mercy. I, I just want to touch on this new story with regard to... A new story with regard to Sophie Toscan-Duplantier, this breaking story last evening, and it's all over your newspapers this morning. Um, it's that a new cold case review is to be opened into the murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier. It is all over uh, your newspapers. The Independent, Ralph Regal and Senan Maloney, writing it'll be a full-scale reassessment. There is potential new evidence uh, and new interviews have been conducted. Uh, 
Some witnesses came forward in the wake of those two TV documentaries that we saw, one on Sky, the other on Netflix. We covered them in great detail on the programme. Um, there's a review of the file also, and it suggests to the DPP, this is interesting, there's a suggest, according to the Independent, the DPP now sees there may be some clear new avenues for investigation. Now, that in itself is fascinating. Um, they still have things like the concrete block that was used to murder poor old Sophie. Um, her son was on the late, late, uh, Pierre-Louis, remarkable young man, and uh, the Independent also reporting that after that interview, that people also came forward to the Gardaí with, with information. Now, the examiner then own English and Cormac O'Keefe writing here. They, again, they mentioned Pierre-Louis. They say he spoke on Wednesday night, that was last night, in response to the news. And he said, this is a good day for my mother and a good day for people living in West Cork. I have high hopes now. Um, I have enough elements in the case. He believes, these are his words, enough elements in the case to warrant uh, a public trial. And the Irish Sun and Mooney and Michael Doyle with the story here, uh, they take it from Ian Bailey's point. He says he has vowed to cooperate with the new inquiry. He says he wrote to Drew Harris a number of times. There have been previous appeals for information but always hit a dead end. But the documentaries do certainly seem to have energised and encouraged people to come forward. And I heard an interview this morning with Ian Bailey's solicitor Frank Bottomer in which he said many people have written to him um, over the course of the years and some of what they wrote uh, has been very, very useful. 0818 96 96 96. We'll follow that with interest as it develops. Your, your text or WhatsApps to 083 396 96 96. And of course, voice messages welcome as well on WhatsApp. So I want to talk to Sinead Kilcawley. Sinead, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Good. Your daughter is a remarkable young woman. Thank you so much. We're very proud of her. Now, just to recap for listeners, she she's 15. And That's right. she was diagnosed with a brain tumour when she was eight. Now, that must be absolutely terrifying for any family. Yeah. Thankfully, she made a good recovery, but it left her completely blind, correct? That's correct. Yeah. We still go from scan to scan, so life is different. Right. But we thank, you know, we're thankful for every day. You learn to live every day as best you can. Yeah. That's really tough on a family, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it certainly you've, you've is. Other, you have other kids as well and, and all that. Really yeah, my son uh, Owen is autistic, and I have a twenty-year-old, twenty-one-year-old now, actually, Kira. Yeah. So yeah, we're okay. we're um, a busy house. I'd say so. I'd say so. So now, and I'll talk to uh, Neve in a minute, but sh she's just done the junior cert. That's and right. Being, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like to try to do an exam when you're blind. But uh, sh she got some additional time, I think, in each paper. That's right. We did get additional accommodations, for example, um, a special uh, exam centre um, and a scribe, you know, all absolutely necessary. 
because Neve hasn't had enough Braille um, tuition because of COVID primarily mm. and also training on, you know, assistive technology. So she really did need a scribe because that's the only way that she can, you know, yeah. get the exam papers read to her. Yeah, so we were very appreciative of that. The issue that we came across really was the principle of giving 10 minutes as a, you know, as a standard for yeah. um, children with disabilities, 10 minutes per hour, that they was. They give 10 minutes, when, like if an exam is two hours long, they give 20 minutes. Got, and you've got two, 2.20 and three hours, it would be three and a half. But it's kind of a, a random figure. Now, I'll get to that in a minute, but you actually initially yes. didn't even know she was going to be entitled to that until you bumped into a man called Kieran Delaney. We were aware of the 10 minutes because um, when you did her mock exams, you know, we obviously... Um, got more information about what she'd be entitled to for state exams at that point. What we weren't aware of were very important um, items like breaks, because Neve, as you can imagine, concentrating, listening to somebody for a long time is is can give you headaches. Neve gets headaches. Her tumour is midline, so it can increase fatigue. So those breaks were vital, really. So Neve could go and you know, get a bit of fresh air and, and try and clear her head, basically. Sure. We didn't know. Now, I did know because there was a letter you sent to me back in, I think, March at some point, I could be corrected, outlining the additional accommodations that Neve had. And there was a reference to rest breaks. But to be honest, PJ, I didn't really know what that meant. I thought it was just going to, you know, to, to, to the loo, that type of thing. But that 20 minutes was vital. Also, there was in other information that Kiran helped us find out was that Neve could maintain the same break between exams if she had two exams in the same day. And that's important as well. Hmm. A lot of this information wasn't obvious. You weren't told about it. No, exactly. You know, there may be, the, like, for example, the rest breaks, there was a reference to it, but there was also a reference to a booklet that we didn't have. What I found with the information that we've received and the information I looked up on the website was that it's very difficult to negotiate. You know, life is busy, as you can yeah. imagine, and I just don't have the time to sit down looking through PDF documents. Yeah. I really don't. Oh, I looked at some of them this morning, uh, Sinead, and yeah. I, I'm not a barrister, and, and you no. <laughs> almost need to be to decipher exactly. what's in it. And, you know, there's such emphasis on maintaining the integrity of the exam. And really, I don't believe there's enough information or emphasis on equality for the students. Yeah. And just now that, and again, I'll, I'll talk to her in just a sec, but Neve done the junior now. You're concerned yes. that over the next two years or three years, as she prepares for leaving cert, you want to change. Exactly. Exactly, I do. You know, there are a few areas where I really felt very strongly about. The first one is, I believe that there seems to be a one-size-fits-all approach. And also, that 10 minutes, I have asked, where did that come from? Because that is a time frame that's given to students, and they're entitled to know why they're being given 10 minutes. I've looked at some other jurisdictions, and they give you know, a percent time increase. Yeah. To me, that's a, a very logical approach and they actually give more than 10 minutes from what I could see. So yeah. there are two things. 
each child is entitled, regardless of their disability, to be given the same opportunities everybody else. And that means looking at their needs specifically and not giving some blanket time frame. And I think you believe, do you, that everyone's extras, every what everybody is allowed should be, if you like, to use a word, bespoke to their needs based within a set of rules, correct? Exactly. And if you look at the UNCRPD, Article 24, that this government have ratified, there's a specific section on education. This is the United Nations Council for Rights, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And there's a specific section there that details how individual needs for children should be specified to each child. Now, I don't see that and I haven't experienced that. Okay, pass me across there to to Neve for a couple of minutes and we'll catch up, the two of us. I will, of course. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you, Peter. More than welcome. More than welcome. Hello, Neve. Hello. How are you, girl? Good, thank you. Good. Tell me, first of all, a bit about when you were sick, when you were small. Um, you You were eight or nine. What do you remember about it? Um, I remember my diagnosis. Um, I was sitting in a room with the doctors. It was very unexpected. I didn't even know what a brain tumour was. So when mm. somebody said I had something inside my head, I was very frightened. Um, yeah. They did say it was a possible that I had cancer. Um, that was, you know, very terrifying because I associated that with, unfortunately, possibly dying. Um, yeah. I did ask them is it possible that I might die? And they said they didn't know. And you're only eight and you're asking all these questions yourself. You're very brave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, th- I think that's down to the fact that you want to be a journalist when you grow up, but I'll, I'll come back to that one. <laughs> so, so you had all the treatment and you had all the, the, the scans and you had all the chemo. Um, was losing your sight a shock or did they tell you that was going to happen? Um, so what happened was that summer I experienced um, headaches, extreme headaches, and then I kind of, my vision deteriorated slightly and I used to get like blurry vision. Yeah. Um, so we went to the doctors about that and I had an MRI. They rushed me up to Beaumont Hospital where I had a shunt in place because they'd realised that the fluid in my head and my brain tumour was after growing. And oh. it was applying pressure on my optic nerve. Okay. What? And I shunt is like it then, is a tube, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so it's a tube from my head down to my stomach to release some of the fluid that was building up because the tumour was blocking the hole that does right. um, release the fluid. And is that still there, Neve? Um, yeah, it in, is. Yeah, Wait, yeah okay. I have it in all the time. Two actually okay. in. Two of them. Crikey. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and going blind then, that must have been awfully frightening, was it? Was it sudden um, or it, did it happen over a couple of days or a couple of weeks or what? Um. So I woke up after the surgery and my vision decreased significantly. Um, it didn't all go away at once. I kind of just deteriorated over the few months. Mm-hmm. And you can see um, nothing now? No, nothing. Nothing. That's a scary world to live in, a dark world. Um, like, I suppose it was at the time, but I, I've gotten used to it. And 
there are more opportunities. Like I can be independent with a cane or a guide dog, and um, hmm. and I do, do thank the guide dogs, and they have helped me very much. Oh, well, you have a doggy, have you? No, I don't. Yeah, I have to be sixteen. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, okay, but you got your cane, and you're good with that. So, so it came to the junior cert, uh, Shade or Neve, and. You got a scribe. Now, tell me what a scribe does for you. Um, A scribe would read out my test to me, and then I would instruct them what to write down. So they would write down the answer for me, but I would tell them what to write. I see. I see. And, like, I think one of your favorite subjects is maths. How does that work in maths? Because you Um, can't see to to jot down (laughs) notes. It was hard, especially when I went into secondary school because it was, I suppose it was harder maths and we had to adjust. But the way I would do it is I do have resource classes with my maths teacher and she would explain things to me like diagrams as well. Right. Um, Right. And then I just go through the process. If I'm working out a sum, I would just talk it through and then my scribe will write down what I'm saying. And I'd say that's, is that kind of tiring that you're kind of trying to focus on the exam, on the question, on your thoughts, what you want to give as an answer, all that's going on in your head at the one time. Yeah, and I have to do all my maths in my head and I have to instruct the person what to put in the calculator. Now, I would have thought, Neve, that 10 minutes isn't a whole pile of time. It's 10 not. Per hour. Even, it's definitely not. And even reading through the whole exam and deciding what questions I'm going to do, writing down my exam number, my name, that 10 minutes is gone. Yeah. And the scribe then, does the scribe read the whole paper to you or just the question as you're going along? Because you've, you've choices to make too, don't you? You've decided whether you're going to do A or B. Um. Yeah, so... They will read through the whole thing and then they would say, which one do you want to do? And they give me the marking scheme or the time. Um, and then I would choose which question. They would go to that page and read out to me what's on it. I see. I see. And you got through all your subjects. Um, yeah, I did. did it, Very how, happy to have it done. Really? Absolutely. How did it go for you? Um, it you went happy? well. Yeah, I am mm. happy. Good, good. And you know what? You've gone you've gone and you've done it. And with all that you've been through, it's fantastic. You've a great and I'll bring your mum in again in a minute. You've you have you have a great attitude to life. I just want to talk a little bit more, but you know I'm watching the clock here, uh, Neve, and when you get into journalism and when you get into broadcasting, because I know that's kinda of what you want to do, you'll understand <laughs> that clocks are our boss. So let me take a small commercial break and I'll come okay. back and we'll finish this chat, all right? Wayne will let that run okay. there, so Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10am to 2pm. With Hidden Hearing, tuning you in so you don't miss a thing. And we've been doing it for over 30 years. Hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96FM. So I'm chatting with um, Sinead Kilcawley and with her mum, Neve. Sinead is uh, 15 and has just done her junior cert. And Sinead has been blind since she was eight because she had or has still indeed 
uh, a brain tumour. Neve, you want to be a journalist when you grow up, do you? Yes, I do. Um, I just kind of like, I always liked kind of that thing. And I haven't decided which part of journalism I would go through. But I think when I'm going into fourth year, I'll explore more into that. Good. Do you think that, you know, journalism is about telling people's stories? Do you think that that's what you want to do now that you're out here telling your own story and doing it brilliantly, by the way? I think it's important to give people a voice and like today I'm given the opportunity for people to hear my story and I just think that's important and giving people the opportunity to speak up on what kind of things have happened to them. Brilliant. And when you get to the Leaving Cert in a couple of years' time, what rules would you like to have had changed for you to be able to sit those exams? Well, personally, I would definitely like the 10 minutes to be expanded. Um, I would like it to be half an hour. And then some people might think that that's a lot of time, but... If that's a two-hour exam, that would only be an extra hour. And believe it or not, then, like, I would need that time. That time will be used up. Well, you explained how it all gets eaten up in simple things like communicating with your scribe, let alone answering the questions. Stick me back on there to Mum for a minute and we'll just wrap up to chat. I really love talking to you, Neve, and good luck with everything, especially your career. I'll be watching my job in a few years. (laughs) Sinead, you guys were on with my friend Damien in Waterford in in the last couple of days, Uh, and this story is really gaining traction for you now because, like, this is important. This is a policy change. You've had to deal with a specific policy now, but the next time your wonderful, wonderful daughter goes to sit down and do an exam, she doesn't need to deal with that policy, or at least there's been a new one. That's what you want. Exactly. It shouldn't be a struggle. All Neve wants is equality, and all we want is a fair chance. You know, we don't want an advantage. We, you know, we want to maintain the integrity of the exam. Of course, we just mm. want equality. And you made the point that this 10 minutes seems kind of random and, and, and you'd like to know where it came from and, and that it should actually be kind of bespoke for someone like Neve because Neve's difference is not the same as somebody else's difference. Exactly. And 10 minutes doesn't, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing. Well, and that's exactly, you know, the point I made way back in February and March when I tried to establish where it came from. Um, and without any answer, the only conclusion I can draw is that there isn't one. Yeah. So where did it yeah. come from, you know? It seems to be also, one of these just, things. Also, just to point out... Drive on. Just, um, sorry to interrupt you. You know, for Neve's practical exam in home economics, where she demonstrated her cooking skills and cooked a two-course meal with the help of... Um, you know, with the help of... Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. She, she was refused extra time. You see, that's not good. That can't that can't happen again. Well, Sinead, no. let me tell you something. Um, we mentioned um, Kieran Delaney, who I know you met at a disability network who meeting. Who has been such a wonderful advocate on our behalf. We can't and thank was, him enough. And Waterford and Disability one, Network, I have to say. And he is one of my oldest and dearest friends. And I'll say this much for well, you. If he's in your corner, you've got yes. a good man there. I think, I think without him we wouldn't be here so thank you and can I just have a quick thank you to the Irish Guide Dogs and Victoria Elliott in specific because she helped me with her cane training and sure. came to us in the very early days and gave us hope 
for the future and we can't thank her enough all right good luck to you both and and you know what we might even catch up again because i don't think this is one that that you're going to let rest because we have a couple of years before she has to sit another exam but here's hoping that things are different in the future can sinead kilcally and neve thank you both for giving us the opportunity to tell our story take care more than welcome. 0818 some stuff coming in on uh, Harbourview Road, which I'll get to, and uh, more thoughts on special needs education, and people are very impressed by Neve and Sinead. I will come back to all of that, but I want to talk for a few minutes about polycystic ovary syndrome. came up on the programme a number of years ago when I knew absolutely nothing about it. But I remember at the time, so many people came forward and says, yep, I have that, or my sister has that, or my my mother had that. So let's look a bit more into it, um, because Roni uh, Bajkal is the author of a book called Living Picos Free. Um, and I think you suggest, Roni, that it is a condition that can be treatable through through nutrition and lifestyle. Let's start, though, by talking about what it actually is. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for giving airtime to PCOS on your show. It's so important we raise awareness. So I'm really pleased to be on, and I know that you've already had several questions come through as well. Yeah. Yeah. What is it to start with? So polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS as it's often abbreviated to, is actually the most common hormone condition or endocrine condition to affect women and anyone assigned female at birth. It affects at least one in 10 women, and 75% of those with the condition don't actually know they have it. But yeah. whilst many people sort of think, oh, is this a, you know, a a, a kind of a gynecological condition. It's actually a condition that affects how the ovaries function. So it affects how, um, and, and it results in a wide range of reproductive, psychological, and metabolic symptoms, which we're definitely going to talk about. So it's not just a fertility condition. It has really far-reaching consequences. Yeah. And um, one of the hallmarks is insulin resistance, which is where... Mm-hmm. The energy, so that's what happens where your your blood sugars basically run high, and it's almost like sort of the cousin of type two diabetes. That's sort of a simple yeah. way of kind of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting connection. I'll, I'll develop that a bit more. How how come you said it's missed a lot? How come it's missed? So it's missed a lot. And the reason why 75% of people with PCOS don't know they have it and are living undiagnosed is because the symptoms are so diverse. And often you're going to see different specialists for different symptoms. So I might be seeing a dermatologist for my acne, a nutritionist like me for weight loss. I might be going to see a um, trichologist for my hair loss on my head. I might be going to see a 
gynecologist for my infertility. And so really, you could be going to see all these different specialists and no one is joining the dots. You might be put on medication for your acne or be given a special treatment for your excess hair growth. And you might be spending a fortune going to see all these different specialists, but no one is connecting it and saying, okay, you have PCOS and often people don't find out they have PCOS sometimes only when they're struggling to get pregnant and sometimes often they they live into their later years not knowing they have it and that means that they're struggling with all these symptoms but no one is actually helping them get to the the root cause of their issues. So it really is a kind of a holistic um, condition in that it can affect the body in many ways and that leads it to be difficult to diagnose. Absolutely. And everyone is different. So PCOS manifests differently in different people. So some people might have just a couple of symptoms, just like acne and excess hair growth. Some people might have subfertility. Other people might just have the mood disorders, which are often not spoken about in PCOS. So you can have a high, you have a higher risk of things such as binge eating disorder, anxiety, depression, OCD. It's really difficult stuff that no one's talking about and including things like sleep disorders like sleep apnea where your breathing stops and starts when you're sleeping these are the lesser known symptoms of pcos but there are robust studies out there which we include in our book living pcos free because a lot of these symptoms go completely unrecognized and many people with pcos don't realize that perhaps their mood is connected to their other symptoms to their weight and so on but um with pcos there is actually a formal type of diagnosis which we should probably touch on because mm. otherwise people are listening might think oh i've got acne do i have pcos and that's not necessarily the case okay but many symptoms can manifest themselves and it's best to get checked for it now why did you decide uh, to, to write this book Winnie? So I decided to write this book because I personally am living with PCOS and I've been managed managed to get control of my symptoms, which really started, I was in my last year at Oxford struggling with high levels of stress and we know that that can exacerbate PCOS symptoms. Women with PCOS often struggle to regulate cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And I was experiencing extreme cystic acne, hair loss in the top of my scalp. I was lean, so 20% of women with PCOS are not living in larger bodies they've got and in the normal bmi range and that was me so i automatically thought oh i can't have pcos and i didn't really seek a formal diagnosis despite the fact that my mother is a gynecologist who i co-wrote the book with so i was in this incredibly privileged position but i had all the hallmark symptoms the irregular periods which is a really common sign so if you're someone that menstruates and you're not having a regular cycle between 24 to 35 days and that means every month your period should be coming at a regular predictable interval maybe just a one couple of days variation but you should know when it's coming and that is a sign that you need to get it checked out it doesn't mean that it's necessarily pcos there's a lot of other reasons why you might miss periods including pregnancy of course but you need to get that checked out so because I had the condition, I said to my mother, we need to write a book. There is no book out there that actually combines evidence-based medicine. So all the latest research, we have over 500 studies in the book with a really practical guide to helping women manage their condition. Because we know that making healthy lifestyle changes is the first line of treatment in PCOS. And often you're just told by your GP to go away, lose weight, come back when you want to have a baby. But it's not as easy as that. So that's why our book really you know walks people through this how to do this um and it's a really practical guide 
That would sound like a very uh, dismissive way to talk to anybody, but that's that that's a by the by. Come back to the link between or the similarities between PCOS and and type two diabetes. Um, you said it's it can be it can make you insulin resistant. Is that yeah, why you could so, be right? Go on. Yeah, so that's what causes a lot of the symptoms. So between 70 to 80% of people with PCOS have some degree of insulin resistance and that causes your blood sugars to go high and means that you might be getting things um, and it can also impact your testosterone or androgens, which are hormones, the most common of which we know is testosterone. So that results in things like the excess hair growth, acne, and these are seriously stigmatizing things. So um, definitely if you've got any of these these uh, symptoms to go and get them checked out but um, with regards to the insulin resistance there are lots of things that you can do in terms of lifestyle to help put that at, at into remission or prevent it from progressing because we know yeah. that about 40 percent of women um, will develop type 2 diabetes by the time they're 40 if they've got pcos so we know that it wow. can rapidly progress oh, type 2 diabetes <laughs> And do you know the way we know um, from research that, uh, yeah, there are lifestyle connections, uh, if, if you want, between type Absolutely. 2 diabetes? And, and is, can you, um, forgive me, I'm trying to word this in a, in, in a way that listeners will pick up on, can you manage your PCOS in the same way that you would manage shall we say, being told by your doctor, look, you're, you're dangerously close to type 2 diabetes. Can you manage your PCOS in the same way? Yes, absolutely. Although, of course, with PCOS, it's you want to really be open to understanding that even if you need medication, lifestyle changes will always help you. They will help reduce the long-term risks of PCOS, such as higher risk of endometrial cancer, heart disease, um, all of these sorts of issues which are higher in PCOS and including pregnancy complications. So making lifestyle changes early will always help you if you have PCOS or any condition, even if you're not living with something. We know that so many, so much of what we see in terms of chronic diseases can be prevented with a healthy lifestyle. So in living PCOS-free, we recommend adopting a plant-predominant diet. So that means eating oh. lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds. And that really helps reduce the inflammation and tackle the root causes of the insulin resistance. We also recommend staying active, so moving your body regularly, avoiding alcohol and tobacco, or certainly minimizing alcohol and avoiding tobacco. And then supporting, keeping yourself supported with a loving group of friends and family, because that's really important. Finding mm. ways to manage your stress, that could be yoga or meditation, all these different things. So um, and sleep, getting really, you know, about seven to nine hours of restful, restorative sleep is really helpful for yeah. um, helping to regulate blood sugars. So all of these things can really help if you have PCOS. There is hope out there, and that's what our book is all about. Yeah. On, earlier on, you were talking about the different symptoms that can appear, uh, one of them being excess hair growth. And I know women having, you know, un, unwanted chin hair, shall we say, can be a, a symptom, yeah. I believe, in your younger years. If you manage your PCOS through maybe medication, but definitely through those lifestyle changes, can those symptoms disappear? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. And you just mentioned in your younger years, actually, we know that PCOS can affect women in the menopause. So we have a whole chapter about that in our book, including a chapter on how it affects women in teenage years as well. But you can, you can see a significant reduction in these symptoms because you're seeing 
lowering your reducing insulin resistance and thereby reducing things such as um, the testosterone, which is causing a lot of these symptoms. So you can see some people might see their symptoms disappear. Other people might just see their symptoms improve and they might need some topical solutions like laser hair removal. And of course, some people don't wish to remove their body hair. It's totally a personal choice. And we do unfortunately live in a world where beauty standards means that women are expected to be as smooth as dolphins. Um, I think it's really a personal choice on what people decide to do. Yeah. What medications are, are given? Um, do they give, for example, I, I, heard, I'm, I may be wrong here, so forgive me if I am, it happens frequently. Do they give something like metformin, which is a, a, a type, diabetic, type 2 diabetic medication for PCOS or what? Am I confused I'm there? so impressed. Do- yeah, I'm so impressed with your knowledge. It's really amazing to have men join the conversation as well. Um, because, yes, absolutely, metformin is an off-the-label treatment, so it's not often um, actually supposed to be recommended for PCOS, but it's sometimes used to help with insulin resistance. But there's okay. also so many things that you can do from, from the lifestyle perspective. So making those changes as the first line of treatment. So that's the first thing we want to go to. Um, and then there are supplements that can also really help, like myo-inositol, making sure you've got enough vitamin D because women with PCOS tend to be low in vitamin D. Yeah. Um, that can really help with improving insulin sensitivity as well. But in terms of medications, there's a variety depending on the issue. The most common is the birth control pill, which I was um, just going to ask you that suitable. one as well. Yeah, in, in particularly, in, and I know yes. parents listening of, of teenage girls mightn't be so happy with a, a 15 or 16-year-old going on the pill but if the 15 or 16 year old is is, is showing symptoms of PCOS that might actually help Yes, and we talk about how safe the pill is. There's, you know, thousands of studies on the pill. And yes, in some adolescents, they need to be monitored for mood changes. But the pill is absolutely, um, you know, a, a line of treatment. It won't it won't sort of address perhaps the the root causes of the symptoms. And that's why it's important to still make all those lifestyle changes, but it can really help with reducing the risk of endometrial cancer, because obviously if you're not having regular periods, that is a really high risk. And that's why you do need to make sure you're having regular periods. And it can also help with um, skin and hair issues as well, which can be incredibly debilitating for people. But um, it's important that you make these decisions consciously with your doctor, having an open discussion. We have loads of guidance in our book, Living PCOS Free, on how to have these conversations, how to advocate for yourself in a medical setting. And really, you know, I think um, get get to the right solution for you because everyone is so different and we want to honour that. Yeah, I, I must say it's nearly 10 years ago now since I first heard of it. Um, might I suggest, uh, be so bold as to suggest that maybe 10 years ago, society didn't know so much or recognize so much about it which is why now it's so manageable whereas in the past people just got on with it and it 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 did its damage on their bodies over a period of time well yes we know that unfortunately that we know that pcos is as oldest time Hippocrates was writing about PCOS and often um, you know it was just dismissed as a fertility condition which unfortunately is still the case in many in many parts of the world and even in the UK where women are told to go away and only come back when they want to try for a baby and they're not given the help to live a better quality of life um, even if they choose not to have a baby or they're younger or you know that's not for them and it's really distressing to see that so I think we have made some progress in having more open conversations but really you know a big part of our the first part of our book is just talking about understanding your period and understanding the menstrual cycle and things because 
these are things that all genders need to understand. Everyone needs to understand and join the conversation so that we can have open conversations, destigmatize these issues. There are so many issues um, like PCOS out there and that we need to really have open conversations about it and understand that it's not just a fertility condition that has far-reaching consequences. So absolutely, I think any that's why we say to people, if you've got a friend or family member, which you're guaranteed to have with PCOS because one in 10 women are affected, then share this book with them. Let them know that there is hope out there because so often you're struggling alone with these symptoms. I also really want to quickly touch on the diagnosis and how to get a diagnosis. Um, You do need two out of three criteria. So there's a lot of people listening to this might think, oh gosh, I need to go and, and, you know, how do I find out if I have this? And we have, again, a whole, lots of info about this in the book, but you need two out of three criteria for adult PCOS. So that's one, you need to have absent or irregular periods. And that's obviously, you're not supposed to be on contraception for that. So absent or irregular periods. Number two is clinical or physical sort of signs of of PCOS, so of androgen excess. So it could be on a blood test where your testosterone comes up high or there's other blood tests as well that check for PCOS. And then you could just have the physical symptoms, which is also Um, kind of number two in terms of uh, the diagnosis. So symptoms of things like acne, excess hair growth, um, scalp hair loss, these are all kind of common symptoms. And then number three is um, on a scan, you've got polycystic ovaries. So a lot of people get this confused and think, do I have ovarian cysts? No, polycystic ovaries actually have the appearance of a pearl-like necklace. And you've got to have um, multiple tiny follicles so these are immature um egg follicles and they're not ovarian cysts they're very different so the name of polycystic ovary syndrome is very misleading and i think experts were going to rename it but they thought that would be even more confusing so you need to have two (laughs) out of three of this criteria so just having acne but not having any of the other symptoms doesn't probably means that you don't have pcos but But if you have the two kind of okay yeah absolutely then go and get a, a ask your GP to go through the diagnostic criteria with you and empower yourself with information. That's okay. really well, important if you're a patient. Well, I think your book will enable a lot of people to do that, Living PCOS Free by Nitu and Rohini Vajakal. I hope I have the pronunciation of the name right. Thank you, Rohini, for being with us on The Opinion Line today. The book is available from Hammersmith Health Books and is in all good bookshops. 0818 96 96 96. You guys ready? Watch out, watch out. Drive home weekdays from four on Cork's 96 FM. If you want to hear celebrities saying silly things on the radio, well, then you've come to the right place because I've got loads of that in the big drive home. Every summer I'd be going to the bog and doing turf. I can confirm a tea break at the bog is the best. My Spotify rap thing was so embarrassing. It looked like I was living in 2009. I attempted to learn Spanish. Yo soy Becky. That's as far as I got. And there's plenty more where that came from. I'll chat to you in weekdays. The Big Drive Home on Cork's 96 FM. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96 FM. Yeah, quick reminder to you, 
all of the great festival summer sounds of 2022. Can't say it enough how wonderful it is to have music, live gigs back. But for the last couple of years when we didn't have anything, we did have the Back Garden Festival and it's back. Cork's 96FM exclusive online station streaming the biggest hits from the summer's headline acts. All brought to you by Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. You can listen on the app or go to 96fm.ie streaming around the clock now. Mind you, I'd prefer, if you wouldn't mind, like, be nice to me, I'd kind of prefer if you didn't go there until after the opinion line. Do we have a deal on that? Thanks. That's so kind of you. Here's something. You know all these weird things that start getting banned from time to time? Bands come in on this and bands come in on that. We were talking about there was so many, was it tanning or tattoo? Yeah, tattoo dyes. Loads and loads of tattoo dyes uh, were disappearing because of some new EU law and there's some stuff on tanning products and things like that. Now the latest one is uh, vapors, vaping. Uh, the European Commission is looking to ban flavoured vaping. It would mean that a whole pile of those e-liquids that you put into your vape would be prohibited from sale in the EU. This is the drive of the European Commission. I'm reading here from the her.ie website. This um, would be kind of the, the European Commission wants to just make a smoke-free EU by 2040, which, let's face it, lads, is only 18 years away. So we've got, and so many people are vaping now as an alternative uh, to cigarettes. You now have people who have never smoked at all starting on vapes. So kids who used to start smoking behind the bike shed in school are, are now vaping, presumably behind that very same bike shed. And the EU wants to ban flavoured flavored vapes. If you take vapes, if you take a walk downtown, you'll see the vape shops and they have strawberry and chocolate and mint and, I don't know, cheese and onion, whatever you have yourself. Or, but the EU wants to ban all that stuff by by 2040. Um, I wonder what you think about that. Like, a lot of people that I spoke to over the years, and as I said before, I always am a little bit awkward talking about things like this because I've never smoked. Uh, and I've said before, and I'll say it again, if you gave me a match and a cigarette, I actually would not know how to, what to do. And at a certain age in my life, I still say, I would not know what to do. But look, it's a huge thing for many people. It's a huge difficulty to get, to get off it. So many people have moved on to vapes to get off the smokes. Um, but now the EU wants to ban flavoured vapes as well. Your thoughts, welcome uh, at 0818 96 96 96. Now, looking out the window, uh, and you'd wonder what kind of swimwear would people be wearing this summer? <laughs> and I'm just looking out here at the window of, of Coogan Towers right now, and I'm thinking... Probably the most popular item of swimwear would be a dry robe. <laughs> I'm thinking that. But look, holidays are back and people are going on holidays and many people are going overseas to where the weather is a bit warmer, a lot warmer. So what are they wearing? What are people wearing for swimwear for 2022? You see, for us fellas, we have it easy, lads. We have it easy. Just grab a pair of shorts and off with you. Um, GA shorts, of course, for a lot of people. But we, you know, we have it an awful lot more easy. 
What do women wear? Carolina Reeves from Carolina's Lingerie joins me. Hi, Carolina. Hi, PJ. How are you? Good. Um, I wouldn't have classed swimwear as a type of lingerie, but people take a lot of care over it. What, what are the trends? Uh, this year we're seeing big trends regards belted swimwear, uh, gold detailing on swimwear, ruffling, uh, ruching, prints. Um, so there's been a big, big return to swimwear because people couldn't really travel for the last yeah. two years. So it's come back with a bang. So it's yeah. very feminine. It's very pretty. You'd even see like a lot of glitter on swimwear, a lot of animal prints, big, vibrant, tropical prints, brilliant colours. So that's what's coming back in for swimwear for this year. Yeah. See, it's so much easier for us just grab a togs oh, and yeah. on off with this. But for, for, <laughs> for, women, for women, it's so much it's so much different because you've got to have not just you've got to have a bikini or a one piece. You've got to have the right one. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> base swimwear has really, really evolved going from, from your basic swimsuit to basic bikini to really becoming more evolved for body shapes and body styles. Mm. Um, there's a lot of science that's actually going in as well behind swimwear. It's becoming more environmentally friendly. They're using a lot more recycled fabrics. Um, there's been big developments in fabrics with the use of, say, Lycra Extra, so it gives fabulous shape and support, or Charmeuse-based fabrics, which lighten the fabric but still offer UV protection and are really, really chlorine-resistant. So there has been a lot of developments and technology involved in the last couple of years. Yeah. You mentioned chlorine-resistant. Um, I guess seawater mm-hmm. as well as a problem, but one thing you notice... Um, is the stuff starts to sort of disintegrate it goes all out of shape chlorine is a devil for that so have it they, is and what yeah go on what can happen PJ is yeah the, the actual what used to happen was fabrics would actually degrade it would be elastane in fabrics that could degrade but also colours would fade and run and bleach out so the the prints have and the dyes have become more chlorine resistant but they're also using what they call lycra extra and Lycra Plus, which are really, really advanced Lycras. So they maintain their shape. So basically the Lycra Extra can can stretch up to six times. So it comes back into shape quite quickly and it holds its shape for longer. So it's not a case that you're going to have a saggy bottom at the end of your holiday because of your swimsuit stretching out. Um, So there has been all these developments. And as well, the fabrics have gotten lighter. So instead of having very, very heavy layers for more shaping and supportive swimwear, we've got more charmeuse or satin-based fabrics, which are lovely. Now, it's to wear a bikini or not to wear a bikini, that is the question. Not everybody wants to. That's very personal. Um... I find a lot of ladies that would come in here wouldn't dream of wearing a bikini in Ireland, but they're much more adventurous when they go abroad. My thing is that, look, you're probably not going to meet people that you meet. Go for it. If you want to wear the bikini, pop it on. There's just so many choices with styles. So, you know, if, if you're conscious of a particular part of your body, we can work with that regards the, the shape of the bikini that you'd like to choose. Yeah, yeah. But one of the reasons I suppose they don't wear them here is it's too damn cold. But maybe that's well, that's there it. is that. <laughs> and 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 Where the one piece. Well? Yeah, the I know the one pieces. Then they come in a hundred different shapes and sizes. 
Yeah, they do. Um, depending, basically, for here, if you're, I suppose the first question I would ask if people are sea swimming or pool swimming, uh, sea swimming, I would recommend more something quite high necked, maybe something more halter neck, just so you have the coverage for, for any waves, any currents when you're actually swimming. Pool swimming, again, I would be pushing the whole chlorine resistance in the fabrics. Um, you, When people go pool swimming, it can be because maybe they're going for a spa weekend, so they want like a prettier style swimsuit. Or again, if they're swimming and they're, they're joined in a, a swimming club or in, in a spa specifically for swimming, I would say, again, go for the more higher necked, the more sleeker style swimwear, just because you'll feel more comfortable in it. Yeah. Now, the thing that comes up so many times when we talk about clothes of any kind on the opinion line, Carolina, is sizing. Like uh, 12 is not a 12 is not a 12. What, is there a standard no. size? No, there isn't. The one thing I can categorically say, PJ, is there is no consistency in sizing in different brands. You have European styles, you have American styles and you have UK styles and they will all have different sizing systems and different sizing scales. So it is a bit of a minefield. Um, Some... What I would normally suggest is if you're very tall or if you have quite a long torso, I would suggest considering a tankini which could be more comfortable oh, than that, a one piece. What's that now? <laughs> a tankini Remember, is, I'm just I a suppose, man. <laughs> <laughs> the easiest way to describe a tankini would be almost, it's almost like a vest top. So it will come down to your hips and then you have a bikini bottom underneath it. The advantage with tankinis is if you do have a longer, longer torso or if you're very tall, it will suit your body shape better. Um, bikini, some swimsuits can actually come up quite short on people you see, so they won't be comfortable to wear. Tankinis uh, would sell very, very well in the Scandinavian market for that reason. Um, they would normally come in the same, say, prints or, or monocolors of swimsuits or bikinis. You, you can get what we would call the standard strap. You can get halter neck or you can get bandeau or strapless style. But it's great if you want the option to hide your tummy, if you're conscious of your tummy, or if you're going on holidays, you can usually root up the side so you can convert it into almost like a long line bikini. Mm. So it is very adaptable. We won't even go there on the infamous mankini. But thank you, oh, no. thank you, Carolina, for being with me today. <laughs> looking at the looking at <laughs> I had to drop it in. I had to drop it in. <laughs> Carolina from Carolina's lingerie. Uh, if you're lucky enough to be getting away to the sun this year and a bit of heat and a bit of proper sunshine. Uh, there's so much stuff again I'll be just glad I have a couple of pairs of swim shorts and every so often I buy a new one and that's grand but you know the sizing um, and this comes up a lot thanks Carolina this comes up a lot the, 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 the sizing is an absolute nightmare my daughter gave me uh, a Father's Day present of uh, a pair of, of shorts um, and honest to God if I was conscious of label size she said to me Dad if they're the wrong size, take them back and change them. Because she said, I don't know what sizes are out there now. If I was to be conscious of the label size, I'd have gone into my bedroom and hidden for three months and not come out. Thankfully, I'm not conscious of label size. But the flipping sizing, it just gets worse and worse and worse for men and women. Can someone out there just not sort that mess out? Seriously. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Cork's 96FM. Have you ever wondered how doctors learn the skills and surgeons learn those incredible skills they have to use on your body or a loved one's body um, under all sorts of pressure. I'm going to talk about that in, in a while. Just one or two things to clear. Um, my name is Claire Darcy. Good morning at 6pm. My name is Claire Darcy. My friend Julia and I would like to say thank you to Marlene and Graham. We were walking home from the Christy Moore concert in the rain last Saturday evening. And they stopped and asked us would we like a lift. And they went out of their way to bring us to St. Luke's. We'd just like to acknowledge the kindness and thoughtfulness. And that's from Claire and Julia. That's very nice. And I'm going to read this one because it's sitting there and I'll forget about it. And this is kind of a sad one just before I move on. And I just want you to think about this. And, and think if there's anybody out there who might be able to help. I know my pal Aidan Connolly uh, inside North Plunk Street in the IT shop there. If anybody knows what this person might do, he might know or, or one of his fantastic crew in there might know. But let's, let's have a listen to this anyway. PJ, I'm writing this for a friend. I lost my son suddenly at the end of last year. He was a great lad and he's sorely missed. I have many photos and treasures to remind me of all the good times and the challenging times too. However, a lot of the more recent photos are in his phone and I'd really love to be able to get them to print them. His phone is an iPhone 12 and like every young person in the country, there's a passcode to access it. I was wondering if any of your listeners were ever successful in getting into a phone under these circumstances. If anybody has any information on how to do it, I'd be forever <coughs> grateful. I have all, <coughs> excuse me, I have all relevant documents, death cert, etc., but have no clue where or how to start. Thank you so much. Look forward to your response. I'm just going to leave that with you. If you have any thoughts on how she might get into that iPhone 12, or if there's anybody listening with knowledge in that area who'd be able to help her to get into uh, the iPhone 12. It's such, such a sad, sad story. 0818 96 96 96. Now, uh, if you ever wonder how doctors learn those wonderful skills that they show you in surgery or they show just the side of the road at an accident or particularly with small children, like how do you learn to be a surgeon for a small child. How do you do it? And you'd wonder, do they have things like simulators, like a pilot, an airline pilot, learns in a simulator. They, they spend many, many hours in a simulator learning how to fly a plane. Would you believe there's something very like that? In fact, it's almost the same in medicine. Uh, Dr. Rory O'Brien is a consultant in pediatric emergency medicine. Rory, good morning to you. Hi, PJ. Good morning. Good to have you on the program. I think people would often have wondered that, like, how do you? I'm particularly you, you as as a peds doctor. It's a, how do you learn to work with such tiny bodies? And it is simulation, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, that, that that is certainly one of the one of the the ways we do learn. I mean, you learn by doing, don't you? I mean, much in the same way that children learn through play. You know, they don't learn from reading books or theorizing about things. They learn by doing you know, by acting out various things. And it's much the same way, really, for, for doctors, nurses, 
allied, allied health professionals, etc. We we learn by essentially playing, but in a kind of a structured, kind of um, objectives focused way. Hmm. So, what kind of what kind of simulators are there? What what kind of technology is used? <clears throat> Yeah, so look, um, there, there's lots of different uh, kinds of uh, simulation modalities is kind of the term we'd use. So the, the most frequent one, one probably used in the hospital setting, which is where I work, you know, we, we would have kind of a, um, a mannequin basically and kind of like a big, big doll essentially that you can perform various procedures on and there's various levels of mannequins that you can use depending on it's really depending on what you're trying to trying to use, trying to what you're trying to get out of the, the, the teaching session, more or less. And um, now there are more there are task trainers. So, for example, for medical students or nurses learning how to put in a do a blood test, for example, all the way up to doing lumbar punctures or for anesthetists who are learning how to intubate, you know, p- place patients on ventilators. There's there's all sorts of mannequins for that all the way through to, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality. Wow, I, I mentioned um, things like the, the simulators that an airline pilot would would train in. So let's take something mm-hmm. like the ventilation. Now, you know, you watch a medical show on television that looks like it takes about five seconds. You you watch it actually being done in in a proper emergency room. It's clearly a very very skilled act. When you're learning that, like, does the machine tell you you're wrong? Does the machine tell you stop? Yes, it's a good question, really. I think um, it depends on the machine, right? So the the most important thing, really, are the people who are um, who are, you know, both the students are. You know, it's not we're not just talking about students. I mean, I as a as a consultant, I'm still learning, I'm still practicing with these things. But the person who's kind of taking part in the simulation, and the person who we call who's facilitating the simulation, who's kind of trying to help that person through in a making sure they hit all their milestones. We have we have fancy um, fancy mannequins that can kind of give you actual feedback in much the same way as a patient can. However, however, they're quite expensive. Um, so we find actually in the day to day, we can use quite simple mannequins and we can get pretty much the same kind of learning outcomes from those things. Yeah, like I imagine in your own line of work a lot, you know, pediatric emergency, there's new techniques mm-hmm. emerging all the time. So so you'll read, for example, you'll read a research paper or you'll read something in a magazine like The Lancet yeah. and then you'll see a demonstration and then you realize, right, I'm going to do that myself. How do you go from seeing a new technique in your field of work to actually doing it? Yeah, I, I suppose it's a very good question. Um, I, I mean, you, you you need to you need you need a content expert, I suppose. Is the first so there's two parts to it. You need someone who understands what you need to do. So let's say if it's um, a surgical procedure, you obviously need a surgeon who's who's who knows exactly what this new procedure or technique you're trying to do. But you also do need um, a person or a group of people who actually know how to how to for, formulate a, a, an, an appropriate teaching scenario. Um, and um, I, I suppose a, a huge thing with uh, simulation, if you think about it, um, you're, you're learning with your peers. So, so we all get a bit nervous. You know, if you're, if you're in a big group of people and you're with your peers, you get a bit nervous. You don't want to look like a fool, basically, uh, in mm. front of your peers. So it's kind of how do you structure 
the session? How do you make it safe for everyone to, to actually learn and feel safe and open to trying new things? But the real advantage of simulation really is that you can try things, you can push the boundaries a little bit more than perhaps you, you would feel comfortable doing in a patient uh, where it's not yeah. safe to do it. So you can really yeah. try new things. You can experiment much the same way as I was saying, as a child who's playing, um, they can experiment in much the same way that we can. Yeah, I read a, a book many years ago, Rory, as, as listeners will tell you, I'm sick of telling people, I'm a kind of a frustrated medic in that I, if I hadn't been doing this job, it's what I might have ended up doing. And every every doctor I know says, no, you don't want to be doing Anyway, uh, I remember I read a wonderful book years ago by a fellow called Dr. Bill Nolan. <clears throat> he wrote a book about his own surgical training. Uh, and in that, um, he he kept coming back to see one, do one, teach one. Do they do that still? Is it see one, do yeah. one, teach one? Um, oh no, I mean, I mean, it's a, that's a relatively uh, outdated. Um, yeah, this is twenty years uh, ago. I read that book, idea. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean, it's it, to, to some to some extent. I, I mean it. The, the, and even if you go back further, it was like the, it was medicine and, and doctors when when they learned how to train and, and nursing and all of those kind of craft groups, I suppose. It was very much an apprenticeship model where you just kind of followed and you absorbed it all in and you just learned by being there on the boards and treating patients. Um, I, I think we're kind of moving into a, a space now where the paradigm has changed a little bit where patient expectations are much like what you were saying before you know you don't want your pilot to be flying you don't want to be on their first flight you, you <laughs> would have hoped that they would have gone through thousands of hours and um, practicing in a simulator i think the expectations now um, and right rightly so um from mm. patients are look we, we we demand better i don't want you doing this for the first or the second time on me please um i, yeah. I at the very least you should have you should have got to a level of competency uh, on, a, yeah. on some form of a simulator prior to prior to going near me with a knife thanks very much yeah yeah the last question you want to be asked by anybody is have you done this before doctor <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so it's used for education and for ongoing training i mean here you are you're you're Absolutely. a consultant you you would still go back if you like go back to the lab or go back to the simulation and say this is new i've seen this happening in america i've seen this happening in australia i want to learn to do it for myself and 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 there would be some kind of assimilation involved. You, you make it's it's become competitive now, though. I, I read recently that there was a Sim Stars competition where teams from hospitals were tested against each other. Talk about that for a bit. Ah, uh, sure. Look, everyone everyone likes a bit of competition, you know. Uh, and <laughs> it, there's no better way of getting people involved in something by just you know um, putting a little bit of a health, healthy dose of competition. I'd say. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm the I'm actually um, simulation lead for the South South West Hospital Group, and I, I chaired a group that um, uh, it's a second year running. It was initially uh, founded by Professor John Cook. He he works in in a hospital in University Hospital Waterford. Uh, it was done online last year, but it, it was the first year we did. Um, it was a live live event and basically what we did is we we opened it up to to all um to all people who worked in all the hospitals across you know uh waterford cork kerry uh Clonmel hospital uh, was, was there as well and um they, they kind of entered their their scenario so when you when you're creating a so let's say if you want to um test how well a team works in a challenging with a challenging case and um, th there's no better way of doing it than creating a scenario so you almost like writing a play i suppose uh, and you put the pe you put your candidates through it, and you just see how how they go, and they they can learn through you know through experimenting in that in that kind of structured play, I suppose. And um, so they they all entered their their scenarios, and uh, we picked the best five, 
and we had a we had a great night out in um, in Brookfield in the UCC um, Health Sciences Complex there last week, and um, a team from um, the hepatology team, uh, you know, uh, their gastro gastroenterology team uh, from CUH one, and it was a oh, has that line dropped on us there, Wayne? Are you back, Rory? Hello. Uh, yes, I can hear yeah, you. Yeah, there. That's okay. Yeah, you had you had a couple of teams involved. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It, it, look, it was a great night out, and it was basically just promote, um, the you know, how how much fun and how much value you can get from simulation, really. So, yeah, we sure. had a great night. One, one last thing though, I can't help imagining that you know you do the the simulation with, like you said, the mannequin, and you. You, you can do it perfectly on the mannequin and, and everything. is. I imagine, Rory, that, again, even as a, a, an experienced consultant like your good self, the first time you go from mannequin to actual human being, is there a bit of sweaty palms there? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose if you care about your patient, if you care about your job, you're always going to be... Yeah. A bit nervous, and I think that's that's healthy. I mean, if you, you, I think if you're you're feeling no nerves, there's you know there's probably something not not right with you. <laughs> I, I think mm. as a patient, you'd hope that your, your your clinicians, you know, that they that they care enough to get a bit apprehensive. They want to do a good job, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, the, the the whole point of training is that that's lessened to to a mm. stage where it's actually a healthy healthy amount of stress rather than unhealthy amount of stress so that, that's the whole purpose of simulation okay. really uh, getting and, you to feel and, like and, you're, 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 you're battle ready and lastly in terms of the technology involved how, how advanced are we in, in say Cork say somewhere like CUH I mean, um, CUH itself, um, to be fair, w would need further investment to, to get us up to uh, an international standard. Um, but in saying that, uh, in, in UCC, we have a, a centre called the ASSERT Centre, um, which really is uh, a jewel in the crown, I would say, uh, in, yeah. in terms of simulation. Even on a European level, it is fantastic. And there, yeah. there's lots of um, great staff and, and in there so a big part of my job really is trying to get um, people working the hospitals around to, to get them into the assert center and you know and um, get, get to get to play with all the technology that's, that's there mm. I, I i'd love to see that place rory thank you so oh, much for being more with than us welcome, PJ. yeah Do you know what I'll i might i might well take you up yeah. on that dr <laughs> rory o'brien who's a consultant in pediatric emergency medicine at uh, cuh and also does some teaching in the assert center i have to see that I have to see that place. I have to take a walk around that and see all the gear. Uh, thank you, Rory. 0818 96 96 96. Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your guides to nightlife on Leeside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Circus Factory is set to present Pitch Circus and Street Arts Festival Gala at the Everyman Theatre, hosted by the legendary Brian Quinn. It's a great opportunity for Corkonians young and old to see the cream of the crock perform, and it takes place on September 18th. Access all areas. Highly revered psychedelic dream pop quartet Keeley released their first mini album in the wake of two acclaimed EPs and also come to Cork for a show on Friday, July 9th. Tickets are available now from cypressavenue.ie. Access all areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. With Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist and sound this summer on Cork's 96 FM Did you ever think you could be your own therapist and you could uh, sort out your own 
relationships problems or your own work stresses or your own money worries or at least if you can't do it materially equip yourselves with the skills to do that do you really need to have a therapist on hand to do it Orlo Kane uh, is a man who thinks you can he is a psychotherapist and a former NHS clinical lead and he's written a book called How to Be Your Own Therapist DIY therapy Orlo Kane is it possible good morning <laughs> Good morning. Thanks for having me on, PJ. Um, I, you know, I believe it is, and that's you know that's the reason I, I wrote the book. I mean, therapy for most people is is guidance, but most people know exactly what they need to do, and they have their own answers. But I guess what you're trying to do is, you know, kind of really direct people in the right direction, and then to find the answers. And and this is kind of what that book's about. It's about empowering people to. You know, in the absence of being able to get a therapist or being on a long wait list, I thought, why wouldn't I share some of what I know and help people mm. do it themselves? So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about this book. I mean, it's been it's been incredible to see how people have responded. I had a real struggle when I was writing the book. Do I put the word therapy in the title? Do I put the word therapist in the title? Because will it put people off? And it's been really interesting that it's gone the opposite way. Yeah. It's kind of real curiosity. Yeah. I think, in particularly in this part of the world, like in America, everyone's had their own therapist since 1900 and frozen to death. But but in this part of the world, we, we've you we're a bit more relaxed in using the word now. I mean, at I one point in I my think... life, I've gone to a therapist. I have a friend who's a therapist, yeah. so you know it's a, it's it's, yeah. it's a useful. Word. But might I suggest, Owen, in terms of the skills in the book, when yeah. one goes to a therapist. And I'm generalizing yeah. here, so forgive me. What happens is you talk to this person, you lay on the table before them, if you can, if you can yeah. find the words, yeah. what's bothering yeah. you. And then yeah. they, you you kind of teach the person, don't you, Owen, to, to, to reach yeah. within themselves and find the sources yeah. and find the solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess really in the ideal world, so I've been really clear that this book isn't a replacement for individual therapy in any way, sure. shape or form. But the fact that, you know, some of the statistics in Ireland and the UK about how long people are waiting for therapy and the difficulty getting access to therapy means that uh, we have a huge deficit out there with people who are really struggling with anxiety, depression, bereavement, all sorts of problems. And And I guess really what I've tried to do in the book um, the first half of the book is almost a step-by-step, -step, you know, guiding the reader through what you would do in therapy. It's like a crash course in therapy, you know, the importance of telling your story, the importance of making your story help you understand why you may be struggling in your life today. Because I think most of us kind of crash land into adulthood and we haven't really been taught the skills of managing some of the difficult stuff that comes up. You know, how do we manage negative thinking? How do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with these feelings that come up and sometimes feel overwhelming? So what I've tried to do, it's kind of almost like, you know, I'm that kind of voice guiding the person through step by step what they would do. And I do that in a really carefully constructed way. And then what I do in the second half of the book is I talk about integrating therapy into your everyday life. Because, you know, most of us will spend five, ten minutes a day doing all of the practical stuff. You know, you'll get washed, you'll brush your teeth. You may go for a run or go to the gym. You probably spend a half an hour on social media, but people aren't taking any time out for their mental well-being. So the second yeah. half of the book, I construct that into the book where I create a 10-minute program a day for, you know, essentially mind maintenance and how to manage all of the difficult stuff that goes on for us as human beings. And, and what I'm trying to do as well 
it's kind of depathologize mental health. I think there's a real risk that we just over pathologize all of these issues. And the reality is, look, we're all human beings. There are going to be periods when we struggle. There are going to be periods when we get more anxious than normal. There are going to be yeah. periods when our mood might drop. And I think we need to get much better because th- this is the, the big issue with mental health generally. People hide it like it's a dirty secret. When actually yes. it's not. You know, we will all struggle from time to time. And I'm really trying to humanize that yeah. part of our, you know, our, you know, being a human being, really, and um, I think that's where the liberation and the freedom comes. And yeah. you know, when you, I think when you put it into ordinary everyday language and and try and strip out the psycho bubble, you know, people yeah. relate to that. And um, you know, so there's Let something me in this for that with you for for a few minutes, yeah. Owen, because it's interesting. You mentioned how we have sort of clinicalized and medicalized the whole mental health thing and that in actual fact mm. just like we would maintain I guess and this is I mean, I'm, I'm going to make an analogy here and tell me if it's nonsense we we, 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 we look after our physical health by doing yeah. 20 minutes 25 minutes a day you get up on an exercise bike or you walk around the block or you swim yeah. or you play nine holes of golf whatever you want to do uh, and you take the time in your day and you don't have to do anything else because once you're doing the right mm. things, everything else will fall into place. Can we use yeah. similar skills with our mental well-being? Can we take 20 minutes a day just for our mind? Absolutely. And I would say for most people, even 20 minutes a day probably feels like it's a stretch for them, you know, fitting that into their day. So I've deliberately gone for 10 minutes because most people will find that manageable. But if you, if you think of the human brain, you know, like every other organ in the body, Sometimes it will it will burn out, it will exhaust, it will become a bit depleted because it's been overworked. I mean, we've got about 80,000 thoughts a day, which is a lot of thinking. And the neuroscientists tell us that sometimes around 60 to 70 percent of those thoughts can be negative, critical, fearful in nature. So people are walking around not only heavily overloaded with a lot of thoughts, but often quite negative and difficult thoughts. So I guess really what I try to teach people to do is you can learn ways of quietening the mind. You can learn ways to disengage. If you're somebody that's an overthinker or really critical or judgmental on yourself or a perfectionist, these patterns can really create difficulties in our lives. So what I try to really highlight in the book is you don't have to be a victim of all of these thoughts. You can learn how to manage them because believe it or not, most of what we think is rubbish. You know, there's a lot of old claptrap goes on in our brains. Yeah, oh, that is the truth. Oh, stop so, there! Stop there! Stop there! Owen. I want to dig. I want to dig into that one because, do you know, I, I, I sometimes I, I mean, a friend of mine um, was talking to me. About, how are things going to work? And uh, I said, grand, grand. I said, you know, the usual. He yeah, said, yeah, how are yeah. things with you? Always yeah. oh, said, God Almighty. He said, I just spent ninety minutes on Zoom at a meeting of Overthinkers <laughs> Anonymous. <laughs> And, overthinking synonymous. I mean, but there you go. I mean, there's a, there's, and I there's want to a talk a bit about overthinking, Owen, because I think that yeah. you know you've brought it up. Overthink. My goodness, it is. It's a scourge. Overthinking is a scourge. Oh, Why do we do it? It's an interesting one, but in psychology we call it metacognitive processing. So it just basically means many thoughts. And human nature, when when your when your anxiety mechanisms are activated. There, there's a part of us that feels really uncomfortable with being anxious or being fearful. So what we try to do is we try to think our way out of situations. Now, of course, very often, you know, we don't. Often when we're anxious and fearful, it's for no reason. 90% of things we worry about come to nothing. So very often, anxiety and fear is just an overactivated mechanism. But of course, what we try and do as human beings, we like control. 
we like order. So what we try to do is we think, okay, I'm going to think my way out of this. So what can start off as a, a simple thought, okay, what if this goes wrong? Then suddenly becomes, but what if that goes wrong? And then if that goes wrong, what would happen if that goes wrong? So suddenly you've started off with a single worry and then suddenly, I'll give you an example. I was talking to your client recently and he was talking about his job. He said, oh God, I, you know, I worry it's a difficult market at the minute. What would happen if I lost my job? And then he said, two hours later, not only had I, was I worrying about losing my job, but I'd lost the house. I had no money. I was on the street with the kids. Everything had been taken off me. My wife had left me. I mean, he had just created, his brain had created this narrative that had gone to a very, very extreme area. And of course, he ended up feeling really upset and overwhelmed and exhausted by the whole thing. And I think many of us do that on a regular basis. Even with smaller things, we just inflate them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's almost a defense mechanism and a way of almost trying to think ourselves out of anxiety when actually one of the most powerful things you can do is you can recognize that you've fallen into a pattern of overthinking or catastrophizing or being a perfectionist, whatever it is for you, and it'll be different for different people. And you can just spot it as a pattern and say, OK, I recognize that. So I'm not going to engage. I'm going to disengage. So it's kind of learning the art of observing your thoughts rather than getting over involved with them. Do you have to suddenly stop this this thinking, a bit like a tumble dryer full of socks? Do you have to sometimes stop it and say, what are the real chances of what you've just said happening? The real yeah, chances. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the evidence is, you know, it depends on what studies you read, but the evidence is really clear. 90 to 95% of worries in your lifetime won't come to any fruition. So if, if I'm working with someone, there's a great technique in cognitive behavioral therapy and you get people to list down all of the things that they're worried about, you know, and people will come up with 20, 25 things that they're worried about. And often what you'll say is, okay, you know, are there any of these worries that you have any direct control over today? You know, you know, things that you can proactively be involved with to help yourself with. And people will normally select one or two and say, yeah, well, I can do a bit of work in that. But more than often, you know, the other 90, 95% of worries are completely out of their control. So it's about kind of saying, okay, well, why don't you just park those worries for now? They're not in your control. There's nothing you can do about them. You know, there's absolutely zero value in you spending hours getting engaged in those worries. So when people then learn that skill that they don't have to get overly involved with the worry and that it's okay yeah. to park them and just let stuff be, then suddenly there's less burden and they get a sense of freedom back. So this is kind of really what how to be your own therapist about it really is a book about empowerment yeah. and helping people realize you know this is not as complicated as we make it it really is simply about you know learning how to quiet in the mind learning yeah. how to manage these thoughts that overwhelm us and then of course dealing with the emotional stuff too we all want to feel good emotions we want to be happy we want to be joyful we want to be peaceful we want to be contented but the reality is that the other stuff will come up you know there will yeah. be times when you feel low or a bit angry or upset, but these are normal human emotions and they're often there to try and help us out and guide us. They're not there, they're not a bad thing, but we run from the emotions and we try and block them and stop them. And of course that creates problems for people as well, because if you ignore those emotions, they'll keep coming back. That's a key skill, isn't it, though, Owen? Being able to figure out all the things going, around, going on around you. Right, yeah. how to choose that which you can control and mm do your best to control it and that which you cannot and discerning yeah. one from the other is what takes up most yeah. of the time in people's heads yeah it, it, it's part of it but again it's about ad adopting that skill of thinking 
you know, I might make a list of what's going on for me today, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to spend a lot of time with them. So it's just yeah. like it's a broad overview and then making the decision, okay, I, I, can, I can let this go and I can make a decision that I don't need to carry this around with me today. But, you know, even above that, one of the things that I think is hugely important, and I've talked about this in every interview I've done around this book, is, is how you talk to yourself as a human being. And, you know, for me, somebody asked me a brilliant question the other day um, and they said to me, if you were at Glastonbury and they give you one minute to get on stage and give one single piece of advice to people at Glastonbury, what would it be? And the question really stopped me in my tracks, but, it, it, you know, it's really made me think. And I thought most people I see in my clinical practice, the one thing they all struggle with is how they talk to themselves and how they treat themselves. And most people give themselves a really hard time. Most people are super critical, super judgmental. And if you yeah. can even learn to change that and adjust that and learn, you know, most we wouldn't talk to another human being often the way we talk to ourselves. Oh, that's and a brilliant one. Of, no, but it's true. It is so true, honestly. I mean, and I'm sure most of the listeners today will identify with us here. Most of us are internally sabotaging and beating ourselves up like you wouldn't believe. And I think even learning the skill of changing that can have, you know, monumental changes. You know, it can it in itself. I think when you're when you when you find that skill, I believe you're halfway there. Don't because beat yourself up over stuff. Yeah. Just not giving yourself a hard time. And, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I, there's this brilliant memory I have, and I think I talk about this in the book somewhere. I was teaching an anxiety group and I was working in the NHS and I was teaching them techniques on how to manage anxiety. And we were going through all the clinical stuff and the various techniques. And um, th this woman was really struggling. She said, oh, God, I'm really trying to, I'm really trying to work on being kinder to myself and you know and, and I'm, I'm repeating these mantras and I'm doing these different things but nothing's working and I said well, what, what does it sound like and she said that she was repeating the mantra to herself I am calm I am peaceful or something and I said what way are you saying that to yourself and she stood up in front of the group and she was literally screaming at herself <laughs> so she was using she was, she was using the words she was saying all the right things but actually I mean she was literally I mean it was ferocious and I went God, I said, if you were dealing with a, a kid or something who was anxious or frightened, I said, would you scream at them like that? And she just stopped and she said, oh, God, of course I wouldn't. And I said, well, why are you doing that to yourself? Okay. Why are you talking to yourself that way? So, you know, there's something powerful in that, you know, learning to genuinely treat ourselves a bit more respectfully and, and as someone who matters, you know, I that think is I really, really key. Not. I could probably spend the rest of the day chatting about this kind of stuff. Um, and you know what? We might chat in the future about about the issues that, that bother uh, some of our listeners. But Owen, today, I uh, just want to uh, advise people to read your book because it sounds you, you've really captured something uh, within all of us. And it's, it's quite funny as well. And I notice one of your endorsements comes from none other than one of my favorite actors, Benedict Cumberbatch. That alone has me running down to Waterstones for a copy. Owen, thank you very much for being with me on The Opinion Line. Owen O'Kane, the author of How to Be Your Own Therapist, which is available now in all good bookshops. The man talks so much sense. 0818 <laughs> The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 969696. 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. 
Yeah, we have a great response uh, to uh, Owen there. Uh, I have that book <clears throat> in my purchase cart already. Says this message. Yeah, it's it, it's cracker of a book, and he, I could listen to him all day. And uh, we'll have him on again. We will definitely have him on again. Do you remember I read out that um, note we got in the last hour about the woman who wants to try to open a phone? Um, belonging to someone who is is no longer with us. Let me see if I can just call it up again on my screen here. Uh, bear with me. I'm working at home here, so the screens are all over the place. Yes, this was the one. Uh, I lost my son suddenly at the end of last year. He was a great lad and is solely missed. I have many photos and treasures to remind me of all the good times and all the challenging times. But a lot of the more recent photos live in his phone, and I'd really love to be able to get them in and print them. The phone is an iPhone 12, and like every young person in the country, he had a passcode on it. And I'm wondering if any of your listeners were ever successful in getting into a phone under those circumstances. If anybody can help, I'd be grateful. I have all the relevant documents, including a death cert, but I have no clue where to start. And I was wondering if people from the IT game would would know and would know where she might start. But actually, uh, Antoinette was on to say, look, if she goes to Apple, get directly onto Apple, they can reset the password for her I got on to them she said when Rob passed away and they were so helpful I had to produce his death cert to prove he'd passed away and produce ID for myself and then they reset his phone for me that was in 2015 so I hope that the protocols are the same there is a way to do this. I remember years ago there was a story in the news about the FBI trying to get into an Apple iPhone and, and they weren't let uh, and there was a big case about it and all that. But you can do it in an emergency situation like this or a perceived emergency situation like this. So good luck with it and let us know how you how you get on. 0818969696, the number of the uh, text or WhatsApp is 0833 96 we're in the Pride Month, we're on the last day of Pride Month, although Pride events tend to continue right across the summer. And here in Cork, we put more focus, I think, into July in terms of Pride uh, than, 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 than into, into uh, June. I want to talk for a little while with Christopher McCarthy um, to talk about people coming out and using Pride Month as an opportunity uh, to come out. Uh, and Christopher, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Now you grew up you? in. I'm well, sir. You grew up in a small village in rural Ireland, and I think was it your mum, your nan, and your aunt reared you. But rural Ireland in the nineties um, wasn't a comfortable place. I would have thought to be discovering, or so maybe thinking that you might be gay. Yeah, um, so PJ, I grew up in Chamberley, you know, um, it's a small right. little place. It's a shop, a pub and a school in between Carrigaline and Ringiskiddy. So I know it well. Everyone knows where it is, but some people do. Um, and yeah, I grew up with my mum. My mum had me when she was very young. She was 16. My father was never really involved in, um, in, my, in my life, I suppose, for lack of a better way of putting that. And we grew up, just me, my mum and my nan in a house in Chamberley. And... I suppose I was always gay, like even even if you look at it, like not in a sexuality kind of a way, but I suppose I came out of the womb gay in many ways. 
Um, I'd have been sensitive and I would have been, I suppose, quite feminine in certain ways, but not not so much that that you'd say that I would wanted a sex change or anything like that. But yeah, I suppose I was always gay, flamboyant. Um, I played dress up and stuff like that. And when I was very small, it was fine. Um, you know, the way you're you're innocent and you don't you don't take much notice of the world around you. But I suppose yeah. as I got older and I started school and stuff, I suppose I'd have to um, not pretend not to be gay, but things that like were frowned upon by society, things like playing with Barbies or I used to wear purple woolly tights going to school under my uniform um, because they were warm. But uh, that was the reason. But in real life, I loved wearing them. It just made yeah. me feel, I don't know, special or I don't know. I just loved them like the way a lad can love a tractor or a pair of welly boots. Yeah. I loved my purple, my purple woolly tights. And, do, do you know the way you you're, know, you're, you're, there you are, you're 12 or 13 or 14 and you're starting to notice, well, mm-hmm. the opposite sex. Um, uh-huh. was, there a, was there a point, Christopher, where you're looking at, well, there's a girl there and there's a boy there. And mm-hmm. which one you were more sp- interested? Was there, a, was there a point of, like that? Yeah, there would have been. I would have wished, I suppose. I think that most gay people, um, when they're coming out or when they're coming into their own sexuality, that like, I suppose for me personally in the 90s and stuff, in the early 2000s, I wished I wasn't gay. It was like this, the way that society had made things be. And like 12, 13, all I wanted to be was popular, like the other kids in school. So I'd go to the GA disco and I'd cop on with girls and I'd do all the things that was that I felt was expected of me to achieve this normal, this normal life, to be like everybody else. And um, growing up, I suppose, like everybody knew I was gay. Like, I came, like there was no hiding it. And I used to pretend that I wasn't gay. I'd say I'm not gay at all. Like people in school used to get bullied because their brothers were gay, let alone if they were gay themselves. And, yeah, big time. And like even throughout my life, like, like as I said earlier about my father and things, like he was never involved. But people have asked me so many times, people from different like walks of life, and they say, is it because you're gay? And it's like a misconception that people have that being gay is a problem or that it was a problem or that it's something that, that we should not be looking at and not celebrating. And I don't think it's that way so much anymore, but I think that the time is slowly changing to make mm. it... That people that people look at things differently. Children nowadays don't look at it like the way children did when I was growing up. I don't no, think they no. do. No, um, I don't think they do like, either. Did, 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 you came out after secondary school. Um, was there a I point? Did, yeah. Was there a point at which you decided, right, to hell with it, here we go, or or what? How did it happen? Well, I suppose I came out in stages. You know, I didn't have this big coming out to the world, like where I came out to my family and had a party with all my friends and all that. I didn't have anything like that. Um, yeah. I suppose I first started seeing boys on the sly, you know, without anybody knowing, um, including my own friends. Like, we'd go to Mangan's on a night out, and oh. I'd be sneaking away to go over to to the gay bar, you know, at, like, midnight. Some was Cinderella this, was this in the 90s? Yeah, no, it's say early 2000s. Chances are I could have been the Are DJ, but go on anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was underage, so, but still. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't have been the only one in there back then? No, go definitely on. not. Um, <laughs> but I suppose I didn't come out in one full sweep. I didn't just come out to everybody. And it took time, you know, you have to come out to work and you have to come out to your friends and you have to come out to different groups of people. And like coming out didn't happen overnight. It was more of a like a phase, I suppose. There was like a six-month period where I went from 
being with girls and not being able to be with girls, you know, like, mm. like I'm sure for straight people, they wouldn't be able to be with someone of the same sex um, yeah. easily. Um, so I didn't come out in a full sweep, but I didn't do anything like that. But I didn't feel good about coming out. Like, everybody knew I was gay anyway. Like, there was no hiding it. I suppose I would have been, not bullied, bullied would be the wrong way of putting it, but mocked, maybe. That, you know, yeah. kids get mocked no matter what it is about them, whether they're heavy or whether they're tall and skinny with spots. I was mocked for being gay. And, yeah. like, when I came out then, it wasn't liberating. It felt like, like, I felt like somewhat of a fraud, you know, like I had been pretending for so long and lying to different people about my sexuality and feeling like yeah. I had to lie and that I wouldn't have that people wouldn't like me if they knew the real me. And that, that screws at your head, PJ, you know? I um, guess it does. It makes you, yeah, it makes you... Because you're saying to me, I'm not listening like to you. You're saying to, me, you're saying to me in the one breath, <clears throat> everybody knew I was gay. And, yeah. and yes, and, and yet you're saying, you're suggesting that some people kind of, did they, did they hope you weren't? Or I don't think did that they not believe people you? hoped that I wasn't. But I suppose I hoped I wasn't, you know? Did you? Because did you? In, yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. I used to wish I wasn't gay um, for a really long time. And I didn't see a life for myself as a gay man. Like, I didn't see myself finding love and, and having a future. And I just thought I'd be lonely. And that that's like, I don't think that anybody said that to me. But that was the way that the world made me feel, I suppose. You know, like, like being gay wasn't something that was cool before or it wasn't something that was. And it's not about it being cool. It's about it being normal. You know, well, to be to be they, fair, Christopher, you grew up in a decade, you 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 know, <clears throat> you grew up in a decade where it only became legal in this country. So, true. like we were so we were so flipping backward that when you were born and you, I, I love that line you used. I came out of the womb, gay. You came out of the womb basically committing a crime in that case. Do you know what I mean? Indeed. That, that, yeah. Do you ever think about? Do you ever think about that? Yeah. And I didn't know any gay people, so I was the only gay person I knew as well. On top of that, you know. That's because they were um, all afraid. They were all afraid they were going to totally. commit the crime. Yeah. Totally. And now, in, like, years later, people that I knew from when I was a child, I know now that they're gay. They've come out later in life. But, yeah. like, I had nobody to look up to. Like, the only gay people on telly were, like, Paul O'Grady being Lily Savage. That was it. <laughs> you know? Like, that was the extent of what gay was to me. And, like, I wasn't that, but I didn't understand what I was either. And I didn't fit the societal mould. That people did it, did it that trouble you? Did you? You ended up with having to get therapy, did you? I did, yeah. So it was over many things, but I suppose that the way that I looked at men, um, I was somewhat untrustworthy of men, and then that translated in my later life that I couldn't hold down a relationship, and I couldn't, I couldn't see the value, or I couldn't see, I couldn't see that something was going to a future for myself. All of it was just, it felt pretend. And mm. it took me a long time to be able to look at myself and see that these were like learnt behaviours and things that had happened to me in my own life that made me feel that way. Or nobody mm. necessarily had said things to me, but I had to look at myself again and see like, why? Why do I feel this way? And how am I going to change it? And I went about writing things like short stories. I wrote short stories about like, um, I used to wear plastic high heels going to the beach when I was small. So like you go and you, you get... what, sorry, Plastic high heels. So okay. in the pound shop, they sink in the sand. High heels. They would sink in the sand, but it didn't matter. I was Madonna with my sari. It didn't matter at all. You know, like at that stage. 
<laughs> um, but I suppose, like, I wrote a stories about, like, um, Machia was the name of it, the other way, Machia, being fake. And that, like, I'd yeah. put on my plastic high heels and I could be whoever I wanted to be. And then the more that I put them on, the more I'd lose myself. And, like, then I had... It was to look at it differently. As a child, I was able to do that. But then as I grew, went through adolescence and adulthood, I kind of would tone down my sexuality or play it up depending on the situation. Whereas yeah. I was never very comfortable in just being myself, I suppose. Yeah. You know? You're, I don't you're know, it's almost job. philosophical when you think about it. No, you know what? And it's interestingly philosophical mm. in that it's kind of you can... You, you express it really well. What what the things that the, the way that the battle that was going on inside your own head. Mm. Now you 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 started your dream job in what March or was it March twenty one? Oh well, I suppose air, it wasn't in... my dream job at the time. I love working for Air. I work for Air, you know, at the telecommunications company. And at the time, it wasn't a dream idea. It was a lockdown, and yeah. I but thought, you found it was a place where work? you could express yourself. You could be totally mm. you. A hundred percent. And it didn't matter that, like, I was gay. So previously, I would have done a lot of bar work, a lot of retail work. And, like, when I was selling shoes, I'd turn on the camp and I'd be extra gay. And I'd be like, girl, look at your... You'd be marvellous in this. And when I was in the pub then, I'd turn it down. And I'd want to be lifting kegs to show them that I was just as manly as everybody else. And I found when I came to air that it didn't matter being gay at all. And, like, it had no impact on like how I could progress in my career. I was being judged just on myself and on my work yeah. and how I, and which, how good I can be. Is, or, which is only as, it, is sh- as it should be. Yeah. I, I got to ask you, um, mm-hmm. love life now? Yeah, so I'm engaged to be married to Kevin and good. we're due to get married next year, June bank holiday weekend. Fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. But even when you're getting married, like we were looking into, you know, the way Kevin would be somewhat religious, not religious, but he'd have a faith. And um, we were looking at getting married in alternative venues, you know, like places, deconcentrated churches, places that feel like a traditional wedding venue. And there's little to none to find, you know, like um, it's very hard. Even even now, like we wanted to get married in the Triscoll, we'd have loved it, but they're not doing weddings anymore. It's very hard for the normal gay couple to try and find somewhere where they can get married besides a hotel you know um, i just want to ask you one question that's come in mm-hmm. uh, while we're talking christopher i think you're doing a, a great service today to people who might be struggling with the idea of coming out because mm. i think i'm i'm always amazed Thank at you. how many people still are struggling because you see in the industry i'm in radio entertainment and music you know i've i've been around gay people right throughout my career and i've always said yeah that's great mm. that's fine off which i don't care do you know what i mean here's a uh, something in on the phone it says I'm, I'm always uncomfortable about using the words coming out or openly gay what does what does Christopher think? Is the, is there a better way? Uh, by the way, this person thinks you're brilliant. You're so open and so happy about it. But yeah, the idea <laughs> coming out or this openly gay thing. Explore that. For I think me. it's about I think it's about intent. You know, when people are talking about about coming out or they're talking about openly gay, it depends on how they're saying what they're saying. Like we, I was the pride rep here in work, right, for the yeah. month of of the pride month and. Like, there was a lot of questions came from just normal cis people, which are like just straight people, I, I suppose, for lack of a better way, about how they say things. And it's got nothing to do about the wording you use. It's about what you mean when you're saying it. So, like, if your intent is good and if you're saying, oh, well, 
um, I know a man, his name is John, and he's an openly gay man, and you're saying something nice about him, that's lovely intent. So it's saying the way that you have, well, your intentions are what matters, not necessarily the way you say them. You know, what words you use, you choose to use, shouldn't matter as much as what you mean when you're saying them, in my opinion, anyway. Do you know what? Like, even I think when it comes fantastic. to, you know, when it comes to like um, people who are um, gender neutral, or like there, there's a lot more more people out there now that across the LGBTQ plus community, and like it's their job to inform people about it. Like, I got a couple of emails from your office before I came on the phone today, and it was nice to see that like they were including their their gender pronouns in their emails. So underneath their names, they'd say like he, him, him. I see that. And I don't yeah. think it's I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that like that people have to do it. But I do think that the people who are a they, a them, or a she, a them, or a whatever configuration of pronouns they want to use, it's their job to be able to educate people. Like it's our job right. as gay people to be able to educate people about about what it's like or, or how it is. Because everybody's affected by it in some way. Like one and in that, ten last, at least. Yeah. One in ten, yeah. One, one in ten, and I, I, I've often suggested possibly more, because mm. Christopher, lastly, um, someone here who says they don't want to say I'm coming out. What is yeah. another phrase they might use? Oh, I suppose you could say um, I'm gay. <laughs> I'm gay. It's not the end of the world. When you say it, it is somewhat liberating, you know? Um, I know that that I, that I said that it's not fully liberating, but I think that to be able to say, hi, I'm Christopher, I'm a gay man, I'm proud. Like, that's huge to be able to say that. And if you don't want to say, I'm coming out of the closet, because it's such an... A, oh, what a know, stupid thing. An, an, <laughs> it's, it's ancient, like, it's like, coming, coming, in, coming out of the closet is a term from, like, years and years ago that nobody actually needs to use. But you can say it any way you want, once you can say what you need to say. If once your intent is people need to know that I'm a gay man or that I'm a lesbian woman or that I'm whatever configuration of sexuality you are, you can just okay. say it. And I think that nowadays you can. Like my partner has, he's got three kids and like they never looked at me any different. You know, like I was the first man, I suppose, that, that Kev was with. And You're going to be a stepdad. Yeah, I know. I know. And it's mad when you say it like that. I know. Whoa, I know. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, I tell you and, something and now, Christopher, that there's a lot of love in the room for you here. Um, can you Thanks pass on my regards to that contributor? I can relate to so many of his experiences. But well done to him on sharing. That is from John. Uh, and I've really, really enjoyed our conversation, Christopher. Thank you so much for being Thanks with me today. Thanks very much, PJ. No problem at all. All right. Take care. That's Christopher McCarthy. 0818 96 96 96. Sunday mornings, Corks 96 FM brings you The Arts House. Interviews with actors and theatre directors, concert news and show reviews, live studio performances and festival roundups, exhibition info and the very latest film news. The Arts House. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 till 10. With Griffin's Potatoes. Keeping Cork families happy and healthy with the new season's queen. Corks 96 FM. Now, I'm going on holidays in a couple of weeks, and when we get books for the show, uh, a trick of the trade, you, you tend to sort of skim through them and, and get a good read on them, get a, get a good sense of them, but you put them away then, and you read them in detail a bit later down the road. So Factory Girls by Michelle Gallen is gone already into the suitcase, I having had a look at it. But Michelle, um, 
your first book was called Big Girl, Small Town, and that's already been committed for television. Can you see Factory Girls ending up that way? And congratulations on it, by the way. Good morning. Thank you so much, PJ. Good morning to you as well. Um, well, now, wouldn't it be the dream to see the Factory Girls marching their way onto a screen sometime? That would be amazing, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's set in 1994 um, in the north, and you're working in... A short factory. Uh, your character is working in a short factory. Tell us what this, what inspired it? Obviously, you're a northerner. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was born in Tyrone in, in, in the 70s and I grew up in the Troubles. And um, so very much I grew up in a, in a pretty intense atmosphere. But um, in 1994, I'd actually just that summer, I just finished my first year in Trinity and I went back home. Couldn't even get a job. I couldn't even get a job in a short factory. Got nothing. And I sort of lay around the town. And it was, that was the summer that they announced the ceasefire but we didn't really know that was going to happen at the time and it was it was a really intense summer we just had river dance do you remember and Ireland had just yeah. won Eurovision and yeah. Ireland were in the, the World Cup over in the USA and there was all this amazing energy about but up in the north we also had kind of like a, a, a big tit for tat um, paramilitary campaign going on and there was a lot of violence in the, in the, in the run up to the ceasefire so it was yeah. a really intense summer 94 yeah, I remember it because I was working uh, in, as a journalist at the time and we, 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 we kind of knew something might be coming, but we'd no idea to be something as, as significant as a ceasefire. We kind of knew something had to happen. I remember talking to our northern correspondents in the radio station at the time and they all said, something's going to happen, but we don't know what it is. It must have been tough as a youngster growing up in that atmosphere. I think... I think at the time now, I really didn't have a, a great sense of perspective. I mean, if you think about it, you were growing up without, you had the TV and the radio, but you had no internet. And we didn't really get out of the North an awful lot. So I kind of thought the way that we grew up was very normal. And it was only when we did things like we do a holiday in Donegal or if we get down as far as Waterford or we visited my cousins in Sligo that you suddenly had this sense that you were, it was almost like looking in the mirror, but it was the reflection was an awful lot nicer or something, you know, just so much more relaxed and so much yeah. more, so much less stress, you know. Yeah, it's funny, I, I, I did the, the Derry Walls walk on my holidays yeah. Yeah. And, and I was talking to the guide and she was quite a young woman and I said to her, I said, you grew up around here. I said, you know, I said, what was it like? And she said, well, to us it was normal. We didn't oh, yeah. realise there was a different Ireland only a short distance away. And I thought that's one of the saddest element things I ever heard. They thought it was normal. Well, this is the thing, and when I was writing the book, I very much wanted to get across the kind of claustrophobic childhood and teens, sort of, you, you were creating these young women and men in this environment where they literally did not know that what was happening wasn't normal. Um, and then these girls kind of go through what they think is a normal Catholic, basically a childhood and a teenager being in a town where they've never met a Protestant, even though they live side by side with them, because their schools are separate, the churches are separate, the pubs are separate, the shops are separate. And then in the book, a kind of like they're all thrown into the shirt factory where they have to That's actually right. work side by side with the yeah. Protestants that they've like like just the, the other side they've never ever imagined that they'd be up so so close and personal with people that are yeah. you know not the same as them. When you think about it, Michelle, the making of a peace process was right there in the short factories because people made and I, I, I've talked to. The great Phil Coulter about this, and he, he mentions, oh, yeah. of course, the short factories in the town I love so well. The makings of the peace process with the it's friendships between girls and boys from different 
was right there. It's right there, but I would argue that getting into the workforce is a bit late. If we had integrated schools and if we had integrated housing estates, if we were able to integrate people at a really... Like, if you've got kids colouring in side-by-side in preschool, I mean, that's a lot better place to start than throwing everybody into, like, a work environment where they have to... I mean, it is really good in one way you have to go on with your job, but wouldn't it be great if we'd that all sorted out when you were down at your granny's knee? Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? And I guess that's a question we'll ask ourselves for, for generations to come. What also yeah. emerged, and again, <clears throat> um, I suppose Derry Girls, the television show, gave us a real sort of sense of it. But if you've ever been, and as I said, I had two wonderful holidays the last two summers in the north of Ireland. And uh, one thing that really engaged me was the humour of the people. And I think the Northern Irish people who grew up in the Troubles and lived through the Troubles, you've got an incredible sense of humour. And that is reflected in this book. Is it out of the troubled times you lived in, Michelle, that that humour comes from? So I, I think people all across the island have a great sense of humour and the crack's brilliant, you know, and I've, I've seen people all right across Ireland who, who can actually find the humour even in, in dark times. And I think maybe the difference that we had was is that you were really, because it was so intense and there was violence and there was a lot of trauma, I suppose we had to engage our sort of co- humour as a coping mechanism was engaged an awful lot more probably in the North. And I, I know that for myself that... Um, if you can, if you can try and find the lightness or some kind of humour, even in the darkest of yeah. times, it kind of pulls you up enough so you can keep afloat. It's a, it's a survival tactic. Yeah, yeah. And people develop. Do you think that people developed um, a very strong sort of acidy acerbic wit to go along think- with it? I think so. I think there's something about um, toughening you up a wee bit too, you know, trying to make sure that you are fit to cope with whatever might be around the corner. Um, I absolutely think that an awful lot of the humour that I have in my book is just me trying to capture the sort of incredible wit and comedy of the people all around me, both in good times and in bad. I mean, we had an awful lot of crack too. Like, we really, we really, really did try and enjoy ourselves. It wasn't all about just about coping. It was just also about living and enjoying the people that you were living with or working with yeah because i guess well i mean was it possible michelle to have a normal childhood or youth in the midst of all that so i i know people who say that they had a normal childhood or youth and i think it was entirely possible depending on where you lived i happened to grow up in a town that for quite a few decades was had this notorious title of being the most bombed small town in Europe after the Second World War. So you may, if if you grew up in a certain kind of town or you grew up in a certain kind of suburb, you probably could have had, you know, a fairly normal childhood. Um, But I think some people in in parts of, in Derry, parts of Belfast and certain parts of rural Northern Ireland had a very tough experience. Yeah. Um, your, Your heroine, Michelle, I, I'm sorry, uh, may, may, I beg your pardon, your heroine is, she's tough as nails, but she's very, very soft inside. Ah, uh, you know, she's learned how to do that front, hasn't she? You know, she's learned how to be mousy. She's learned how to, you know, put the show on and put the act on and inside her, her wee heart's broke. Um, yeah, it may very much affected by the, the death of her sister. And she, you know, this is 94 and you, you didn't really have the tools or the techniques you needed, the, the words you needed to kind of maybe work through the trauma and the grief that she's going through. Her and her mum and her dad and her brothers just, 
you know, they're just hurting and they can't even talk about it. Yeah. You know, I, I as I said, I, I, I had to look through it for the programme and I, I, I cottoned on to certain parts of it. I so look forward to reading through it properly in a while. Um, it's, it's a super... And I, I have developed an interest in that. I, I was a great fan after she had, sadly I discovered most of her writings after she died uh, Lyra McKee I read oh, her Lyra book Lyra was and, yeah, an amazing woman an amazing, Lyra, and, amazing and, woman and the insight the insight of being a young person everybody yeah. should read that and I think for the everybody should read this this is a super piece of work you've really you've really hit the jackpot on it I think oh, Michelle and thank you very thank much thank you thank you so Jeez. much Cheers. That's Michelle Gallen, the author of Factory Girls, which is out now, and uh, it's it's brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant. It's gone into the suitcase for the holidays. Uh, oh, come here. Speaking of things that are brilliant, and we have been doing this for a couple of years now, and we missed out during the pandemic and all that old nonsense, but they're back. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards are back for 2022. Uh, all the details stay listening watch the website from Monday for more details okay now staying with books and literature look it's the time of year because people are packing for the holidays and they're looking for stuff to read and hopefully when the weather improves people will sit out the back garden and read a bit more and whatever and there's a lot of literary festivals in the course of the summer and one of the ones that's been around uh, longer than most and is really successful is the West Cork Literary Festival which runs from 8th to 15th July which is next week and they have a list as long as your arm of events and speakers and pre- pre- presentations and, and all of that. I'm joined first by Festival Director uh, Emer O'Herlihy. Emer, good morning. Hi PJ, how are you doing? Thanks so much for good. having me on. A most impressive lineup you've got thank you thank you yeah we're we're delighted with it and you know and obviously it, it's impressive because of the amazing writers that are in there and you know we can't wait to be down in bantry um as you said it starts uh, a week from tomorrow um and runs for eight days so we really can't wait to be back in bantry with all of those incredible writers meeting them in person again um hearing them read from their books and and chatting to them about those books as well go through some of the highlights Oh, gosh, uh, where do I start? Um, uh, obviously, we have a, a brilliant lineup of uh, writers from Cork and based in Cork, um, uh, Catherine Kerwin, um, Alex Barkley, who's also a crime writer, and she's got her uh, first YA novel, um, Louise O'Neill, Danny Denton, um, Jenny DeBee, Tyke Coakley, um, Maeve Higgins is home from the US, so she's going to be in, wow. in West Cork with us. Yeah, that, that's very exciting. Um She's going to be uh, alongside a uh, Chinese writer, Yan Gi, who used to live in Ireland and is living in the UK at the moment. Um, we have Christine Leach um, with her memoir, Negative Space, and she's doing an event with poet Sean Hewitt, who's also um, publishing his memoir. We have an Australian writer, um, J.R. Thorpe, who lives in Cork um, with her novel, uh, Lear Wife, um, which is sort of the untold story of King Lear's wife, um, and that was a, a an Observer Book of the Year last year, so that's really exciting. Um, Madeline Darcy is coming um, down with her um, book of short stories, and she's doing an event with the Dira Press poet uh, Nithi Kassa. Um, Sarah Baum is doing two events with us, one on Whitty Island, which is um, sold wow. out, and also another event at... Um, 
with Mark Beatty, a visual artist at um, the Lighthouse in Sheep's Head. Uh, we've Caroline O'Donoghue. We have um, the People's Republic of Pork, which is a hilarious uh, work in progress of yeah. a new um, musical set was, in West Cork. And I was talking to them actually last week. That that's going to oh, be really fun when it comes. You've got so much going on. You mentioned Emer, the name Ty Coakley. Uh, Ty was on the show with me a couple of weeks ago, talking about the the launch of his new book, uh, the game. Ty, how are you doing, mate? I'm very good, PJ. Great to talk how, to you again. Yes, sir. How is the book going for you? It's flying. I'm really amazed with the response. Uh, and as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's blending the personal and the kind of a general about sport, but it's the personal stuff really that is really resonating with people. And I'm delighted with the response. Yeah, it's a book in, as we said at the time, individual essays. So the, the, there is a narrative through it, but it's individual essays and individual elements of it. And and you'll be doing an event at, at West Cork. Tell us about that. That's right. It's on uh, Tuesday the 12th at 8.30pm in the Maritime Hotel. And I'll be reading with uh, a young novelist from the UK, Ashley Hickson Lovins. His new book is it's a novel called Your Show. And it's a novel about the first black referee in the Premier League, Uriah Rennie. I don't know. Do you remember him, PJ? I do. I do. I do. Yeah. He was a famous uh, referee. And of course, he got terrible abuse and, and he, you know, broke the mold in many ways. But uh, it's a great novel. I've read it a few weeks ago and it's just been nominated for the Garden Bird Prize now. So and we'll be in conversation with Kieran Murphy from the Second Captains podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. Well, Ty, good luck with that. The book continues to fly out the doors and I'm delighted uh, to see it. And indeed, I can't wait for the next uh, the next episode of Collins in 2023 or whenever it comes. Uh, Emer, thank you uh, from the West Cork Literary Festival and Ty Coakley, author who will be presenting at the festival. Thank you both. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM. Yeah, do you want to be part of the picking of our music because we're doing it again we've got another music panel going and with it your opportunity to win a hundred euro pennies voucher you need to get online to 96fm.ie and just vote for the fresh new music that we play and that could enable you to shop for free it's a 10 minute survey online choose the tunes and then you could go forward and win that 100 euro voucher with the Cork's 96fm music panel get on it now get on the case at 96fm.ie there's a fella from Ballancolic has a million followers on TikTok a million followers on TikTok for carpentry. Now, TikTok and Insta are full of all sorts of great videos for DIY and carpentry, but not too many of them have a million followers. Owen Reardon, good morning. How are we getting on? Good. Or am I allowed to call you by your TikTok name, Captain Busy Bollocks? <laughs> if you want, if that's allowed. Where did that come from? I don't know. I was just... um. I think I was at a night out one time out with friends and I, uh, they told me I should make an account. So that was the first thing that popped into my head and it, it, it stuck. Yeah, yeah. Carpentry. Why, why did you choose carpentry? How did you get into it in the first place? I think it was just lockdown boredom. Like I had a mallet or a chisel before lockdown. 
lockdown, and then um, then we all around. I into us and turned into too much free time. And that yeah, line, that line is the best. Really. I'll try the one again. So, so you did, did were were you in carpentry before lockdown? No, never. No, I was just just out of secondary school. Never done woodwork or anything. Just it just caught my interest. Crikey! Let me see if we can tidy up that line a small bit because that's that's something I didn't know. Um, Owen is not actually, or wasn't ever actually, like an apprentice carpenter and like that. But he went and discovered it uh, during lockdown, uh, and he's brought it to the perfection that you'll see on his videos, and they're brilliant in the space of about uh, two years. Uh, I thought watching it that he was just someone who who done carpentry like an apprentice and was working as a carpenter, but I just I want to explore that a little bit more. He's up there on the line, Wayne, on one. Um, so, Owen, you'd never done it before, and literally you had a bit, a bit of time on your hands during during lockdown, and you said, right, I'll give it a go. How did you realise, when did you realise, heck, I can actually do this? Uh, when I was in secondary school, I was, um, I used to do a lot of, like, reading on traditional Irish curraghs, you know, the old boats. Um, yeah. And then I'd always wanted to make one, but, you know, I had no woodworking skills, so I said I'd, um, I'd go figure it out. And, you know, the big power tools, um, like the big table saws, band saws, they're very expensive. So I kind of took a look at the traditional tools, you know, the old hand tools, because, yes. you know, you can find them for half nothing, fix them up. And, you know, they were the way everything was made for hundreds of years, so there's no reason that they couldn't do the same trick today. Yeah, you, you do use a lot of those old-style hand tools, and you make your own. I watched a video of you this morning where you actually made a mallet. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, that'd be kind of a simple enough tool. The more complicated tools now I'd like to start making down the line, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and special types of old-fashioned planes that old, you know, carpenters would have used. The old, those old, like, obviously, like you said, there's loads of machines now, and there are machines, computer-driven machines, that'll do what, what carpenters had to do for years with a plane and a drill. Which do you think you'd prefer? Uh, well, if I, it depends, because I do have, like, uh, cheaper power tools that if I'm doing, like, let's say, a paid job that I just... I just need to get it done as quickly as possible. That's grand, you know, you get it all done in a heartbeat. But using, there's a great satisfaction to using the hand tools. There's a great connection between you and the materials. It's hard to describe, but once you build something entirely out of hand tools, it's almost like you're more proud of it or something. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you decide to start putting up videos and why? Uh, well, I'd always had TikTok for about two years, I'd say. And I just kind of threw up the ads, like stupid clip. I had recorded with a few friends or whatever. And um, then about three, maybe four months ago, I threw up just a video of me using one of the hand planes. And it got like 6,000 views. It was like one of the most views I'd gotten in a while. And people were asking mm. questions about it. And I wasn't even talking about it or anything. And one thing led to another. And then it just kind of snowballed in the space of a few months. Yeah. Why do you think they've become so popular? Well, I'd say... As it is Americans who like the accent. Um, and then, I don't know, a lot of people say that it's satisfying watching the tools work. To be honest, I don't understand it at all. It's, yeah. it's a bit funny. There's a lot of time-lapse stuff goes on on Insta and on TikTok, where fellas, or TikTok, where fellas will do a whole job in the sp and, and time-lapse it down to the space of two or three minutes. You do the bit, but you, you seem to just... You're more in in intent, I think, on showing people how this is done. Yeah, that's, I think it's more interesting. I don't really have the... I would be a bit lazy when it comes to production. I just kind of record it as I'm doing it. I wouldn't be setting up cameras and tripods and time lapses or anything like that. 
But um, yeah. it seems to be working, whatever whatever it is. What do you record them on? Just the phone, is it? It's kind of funny. It's, uh, I, I throw up the Snapchat app, turn on the front-facing camera, video myself, save it to the camera roll, and then edit it in the TikTok. Uh, a lot of people have like um, cameras set up and then editing softwares and stuff. But I haven't gotten around to that yet. Right, yes. You're, 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 you're using the old-fashioned ways in that as well. <laughs> That's it. Next week now, I'll be recording all my TikToks on 8mm film. <laughs> so what, what can we look forward to now in the next next couple of videos? Are you working on that at the moment? Uh, there's a big, uh, well, one of the biggest projects I've done uh, will be starting now. Uh, I'm building a new Korok, so um, hopefully this one. Last one I built, last summer I built with like power tools and stuff, whereas this one now I'd hope to just kind of use traditional methods, uh, use yeah. only the tools they would have had access to off the Aran Islands and the Blasket Island and stuff like that, just to kind of yeah. be true to the tradition. There wouldn't have been too many electric planes or electric drills on the old Not Blasket. Not pile, no. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of stuff did they use, Owen? Well, I'm pretty much very primitive tools. Like, um, it's pretty much, I think I, I did, uh, I was counting one day, you could, in theory, build a boat with something like six tools. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it was like a saw, a hand drill, a chisel, a mallet, and... There was a few others as well, but very, very basic tools. Yeah, and that's what you're going to do. Listen, congratulations on the success, and the videos are fabulous, and, and they're just, uh, they're, they're so, it's such a big space on, on social, on TikTok and on Insta, of people doing DIY stuff, and you've, you've battered your way into it, and congratulations on it, and much success for the future. That's Owen Reardon, and yes, one more time, one more time, I'm going to use it, I'm going to say it, that's Captain Busy Bollocks on... <laughs> on TikTok I think it's a great title actually um, while recommending him and he's very well, well worth watching can I also recommend and it's a big favourite of myself and, and the Queen Bee I think <clears throat> this guy is also on TikTok but I know he's certainly on Insta uh, Mr. Tooltips there are loads and loads of different DIY videos on but another one of my favourites is definitely Mr. Tooltips uh, on Instagram. It's hundreds of videos, and some of them are time-lapse, and some of them are not. I've, as a fella who um, will try a few bits and pieces and hopefully not bring the house down around me, I've learned more off stuff like Mr. Tooltips in the last year than I care to remember. And Owen's videos, uh, Captain Busy Box, Busy Box, there I said it again, um, they are also very useful to learn from. And if all you've got is old-fashioned tools, in particular, you'll learn from Owen Reardon on TikTok with one million views. 0818 96 96 96. Come here, we're completely out of time. Programme edited by Fiona Corker and produced and researched by Fergal Barry Wayne Hilton on the buttons. And I'll see you tomorrow just after nine. Stream the freshest hits of 2022 on the Hit Mix. Let's go! Or find the biggest workout bangers on the Fit Mix. The Cork's 96FM Hit Mix and Fit Mix are streaming live right now. Streaming live right now. Download the Cork's 96FM app. Listen on your smart speaker. Or go to 96FM.ie.